Another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I was lucky enough to interview Associate Professor of Maths Education, Christian Bokov. And I tell you what, it is a cracker. But before that, I just wanted to take a few moments to tell you about something I've been working on with the team at EDI. So, as you probably know, many years ago now, uh, myself and my friend and colleague Simon created the website diagnosticquestions.com, and we also now have the parent site ed.com, where there are, well, actually, well, let me give you a live number on this here, flipping out 54,000 uh, maths questions, and also over 30,000 uh, questions from other subjects, including science, computer science, languages, and so on. Um, and they're free, and they will always be free, and it will also always be free for you to set quizzes for your students, analyze their results, uh, use our interactive schemes of work, all that kind of stuff, and much, much more. But we also have a kind of premium product, which we call ED Family, and this is aimed at supporting students outside of the classroom. So we've devised a, a pretty clever system, um, if I do say so myself, which gets the best out of both worlds. It's it's kind of an alternative to personal tuition, but without the cost of personal tuition. So we use carefully designed lessons, which use my principles of silent teacher, narration, your turn, and so on. And these are pre-recorded and students can access these on demand. Uh, we also have interactive worksheets, which use um, ideas such as fluency practice, intelligent practice, and problem solving. And again, students can access these on demand using our fancy bot. Uh, but here's the big twist. All of that, of course, is, is automated. But then we also have on-demand teacher support. We've got a team of teachers and tutors who uh, work many, many hours uh, throughout the day. And if um, students are working on one of these lessons or one of, the, one of these worksheets and they get stuck, then with lots of other systems and platforms, that's kind of it until they speak to their teacher the next day. But because we've got on-demand actual human support available, the student can send a message on the BART and within a few minutes, the teacher will be there to engage in a chat with them over the chat function um, to sort their problem out um, as long as it takes. So um, if you think your students will benefit from this, perhaps as part of um, a summer catch-up program, or perhaps as part of just something um, in addition that they may do um, outside of lessons, then we've got um, an option available for teachers. And if you visit ed.com forward slash teachers, you can find out much more about this. The normal price um, is $7.99 per month per child, which uh, our marketing team likes to say is less than the price of a cup of coffee per week. But for schools who want to buy on behalf of their students and, and parents, uh, we can offer a 25% discount on that. So if you want to find out more, perhaps have a trial, see it in action, if you visit ed.com forward slash teachers, we can tell you all about it. So back to today's episode with Christian Bokov. Christian is an Associate Professor of Maths Education at the University of Southampton. 
He's got particular interests in technology and maths education, Pisa and Tim's skills and understanding, debunking myths of myths, methodology, social network analysis, and many more things that I don't really understand. Christian is also a keen user of Twitter, and I often find his thoughts a useful reminder not to get carried away with a particular research finding. So in this conversation, we discussed the following things and plenty more besides. We discussed aspects of Christian's research that particularly interest him, including the wordiness of maths tasks, the importance of a shared curriculum, instructional time, and PISA and Tim's data. We then turned our attention to Christian's views on popular research topics such as cognitive load theory, one of our favourites of course on this podcast. And then we moved on to textbooks. Why is it that Christian thinks England is missing a trick in this regard? Now this episode is a cracker in its own right, but it also serves as the perfect introduction to the next series of Research in Action episodes where I speak to researchers from Loughborough University, which will be visiting and invading your ears very soon. But for now, let me introduce Christian Bokov. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, so Christian, we start the podcast as we always do with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Yeah, all right. So I've been looking forward to answering this, to be honest. So I've, I think I've thought about it this couple of years now. <laughs> and, and actually, my answer will relate a bit maybe to the second question that you're probably going to ask. And that is, uh, so my favorite number is pi over the square root of two. Right. Okay. Tell me more. Well, that's basically the uh, Ask your second question first. Otherwise, it's right, so- if I'm... Natural. Okay, let's go for it. And what was your favorite topic in maths as a student? Yeah, so uh, my favorite topic has, I think, always been the first time that I was ever taught that it has to do with complex integrals. Okay. So um, Cauchy-Riemann uh, equations, Cauchy's residue theorem. And I was so fascinated with, by the fact that you could use uh, the complex plane, basically, uh, or, or you could venture into the complex plane to get the real value of a, of a real integral that you normally would not be able or very difficult, uh, uh, would be very difficult to solve in the in the real numbers plane. Um, and um, so I thought about it, and I've always been intrigued by this. Actually, when I uh, got to England, I also wanted to teach this, but of course I'm part of an education school, so we don't teach the hardcore maths. But during my first sabbatical, I actually, I think I was probably the first person in academia volunteering to teach at the maths department uh, a module on complex integrals, simply (laughs) to be able to freshen it up. And I was rather rusty, I must admit. And and even some students even even said, well, you can clearly see that he's a bit uh, rusty, <laughs> which, which, I, which, which I didn't really like as feedback, but there you go. They were really right. Um, and there is especially one uh, integral um, that I still remember from the days when I was studying mathematics and complex integrals in the, in the Netherlands, uh, and the result of that uh, integral, so it's it's basically a complex, in, uh, a real in- integral 
that you then transform to the complex plane. Then you do all kinds of uh, stuff with the Cauchy residue theorem, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then after all of that, so pages full of calculations, <laughs> you end up with a pi over the square root of two. And I thought nice. that was just so wonderful, to be honest. Uh, that uh, also the fact that you you've got a square root and pi, but then linked to the complex plane. I and ever since I I'm just still madly in love with the complex integrals and the whole. So complex variables. That's lovely. Yeah. That's lovely. Yeah, it's very few things in life are as satisfying as when a, a nice result like that pops out after pages of work. So that's uh, that's lovely, that Christian. I like that. And well, final speed dating question then would be: uh, What job would you like to do if you weren't involved in mathematics and education and research in general? Now, this was quite tricky because I I, sh- I should take into account where my talents lie, of course, as well. So I, I haven't done that, actually. So I would say, uh, based on my YouTube uh, playlists, etc., I I wish I could be a professional chess player. Right. Um, but I'm just not good enough at it. Actually, I, I play a lot of online chess now with my son. He, he's studying in, in the Netherlands. And he wipes me from the board. And I'm actually not... I'm, uh, uh, I'm actually not good enough really um um I but think you taught I, you taught your son did you so that that must be yes, quite yeah. quite tough that moment where he's beating you are you proud of proud of him for beating you uh well yeah 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 i, I think it's quite competitive still luckily sure. uh, as, uh but the lower the quicker the the chess game is i think we do three minute bullet games and then uh, you can clearly see that i'm getting old and he's not getting old or he's not getting <laughs> Uh, as old so yeah i think he was quite uh happy with the first time he beat me but he's now beaten me many 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 times <laughs> in online chess but you know it's all good fun i think uh hikaru nakamura a famous chess player he has a very uh, famous uh, youtube channel and he recently published a video on how you can make a living from chess and it's quite clear that I'm missing a lot of the ingredients uh, to do that. So you know, I, I wish I wish I could be, I wish I could have a job like that, but it's not very realistic. Okay, well, great answer to that, Christian. I like that. Fantastic. Well, um, at this stage, we ask people just to give a bit of background into their career. So just tell us where it all started for you, Christian, and how you got to where you are now. Right. So I started training uh, for a teacher quite young age i think it was 21 or 22 that i started teaching so first uh did maths uh also did a bit computer science um then in 1998 i became secondary school teacher in the netherlands of course uh, you can hear the accent actually my my mother's english so i'm actually a little bit embarrassed that i've i've always had a very <laughs> dutch english accent but there you go. Um, so started teaching in 1998. Um, got involved with lots of projects uh, in maths teaching, and I, I have you know a couple of things we're probably going to talk about later on uh, uh, when it comes to maths education culture in the Netherlands. You know, textbooks are quite important mm-hmm. and support uh, uh, resources that you perhaps might use in in the maths education. Got involved in lots of projects. Uh, with uh, technology, but also the curriculum. Um, And, well, I was lucky enough that in 2007, there was a project that allowed 
secondary school teachers to uh, basically be seconded to a university to do their PhD. And the, the big advantage of a secondment, of course, is that it's your you keep your normal salary. Uh, because normally, if you do a PhD, especially here in England, it's uh, quite a, a, an expensive affair. And if you normally have a, a, a day job, uh, it's certainly not going to, you know, it's never going to be enough yes. uh, compared to a normal salary. I had small children by, at the time. So that was a great uh, program that allowed me to do a, a PhD from 2007 part-time, which I finished in 2011. And then... Uh, they've basically forgot, this program was great, but they basically forgot uh, to think about what happens after we have a, <laughs> a generation of teachers who, you know, can maybe work more evidence-informed, has, has a PhD, etc. So basically, it either would mean that I would go back to full-time teaching and not do anything with my research anymore, which sounds a bit strange, perhaps, in the current culture mm. in England, because I think it is actually here in England now, there is a nice culture where you can combine both things. But at yes. the time, certainly wasn't the case. So th this is about almost 10 years ago. Um, or uh, go full time into academia. Uh, and uh, because it, it was, you know, schools are not really, didn't really like it if half of my time was spent on the research and universities didn't really like it if half of my time was spent on teaching which i think now has changed actually a little bit this culture it's now much more acceptable etc but they hadn't thought about that so i had to make a choice and after 14 years of teaching i thought well you know i i'm going to enjoy doing research now for a while yes. got a position here in southampton uh, moved here with uh, the kids and uh, my wife, and um, th the rest is history, basically. I'm here now for about nine years, I think. So, yeah, I'm fantastic. feeling happy. It's fantastic. That's yeah. what we like to hear. Superb. Fantastic. Well, now comes my favourite question, Christian, that I always ask my guests, and that's a favourite failure. So this could be from any aspect of your research life, your teaching life, anything you'd like. But I'm looking for something that didn't go according to plan and, crucially, what you've learned from the experience. I would say, and this is probably true for many people, my first year of teaching was, I was quite young, as I said, I think I was, uh, so I was born in 75 I told you that in 1998, started teaching. So 22, 23, started teaching uh, also uh, older kids in mm. secondary school. So I think my first year of teaching certainly was one of the big failures, to be honest. <laughs> um, it wasn't actually that bad, perhaps, but there was like we all probably have had, or we, I say we, I'm a researcher now, you know, I need to know my place. As you know, <laughs> social media tells me every day I need to know my place now. But at the time, the first year when I was teaching, it was just, I had one class that was just so difficult. There really was a group of children that really clearly was out to get me, first year of teaching, etc. At least it felt that way. Yeah. Um, uh, what did I learn from that? Uh, never give up <laughs> because I kept on uh, every time I, I I kept on, you know, trying to get the behavior straight, kept on working. And I think we at least we got some sort of a working relationship, mm -hmm. even though the, the culture wasn't that great, I would say, especially not with that group. But what was really satisfying, and this is why I think what I learned is sort of to not give up too early, uh, mm. is that at the end of the year, 
those, in this case, it was a group of girls, girls came up to me and they basically said, well, we never really expected you to finish this year, Uh, but you did and you stayed. Uh, uh, sorry and then the next year I had them again and it was all plain sailing so basically this whole you know this whole hazing almost of of a teacher uh, I I it still feels like a failure but it also taught me to not easily give up and also understand that you know there is a combination of factors that plays a role how experienced you are, how well you know your stuff. Also, sometimes a bit of luck, um, because if people decide they're going to make your life miserable, they're going to be, you know, it's going to be tough. But to just not give up, I guess. I think that's the the one that I um, I remember most. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking about it now, so many years <laughs> later, right? <laughs> it's, it's a fascinating answer that, Christian. I've, I've spoke about this on the podcast in the past. I had a very similar experience when I moved schools for the first and only time. So I've been teaching, I think, maybe six years and really enjoyed it. And then I moved schools. And in my first term, I just lost the ability to teach. And I had a class, a really difficult class. And they just wouldn't behave. They wouldn't listen. My lessons were terrible. We were learning nothing. And I got to the bottom of why it was. And it was because I think they'd had 13 maths teachers in four years or something like that. So they just assumed that I was going to go like everybody else was going to go. So what's the point in them investing in a relationship and behaving whenever I'm probably going to be gone in a few weeks? And it was only when Christmas came, things got a little bit better. Then when Easter came and I was still there, things got a little bit better. And like you say, if... um, Well, one, it's about not giving up too early. I think that's a really nice way of putting it. And also it's about kind of appreciating perhaps the experience that the students have had as well in in, in kind of thinking about their history and how that might impact the relationship that they have. It's it's a complex game teaching, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and, you know, um, yeah, still, I have all the respect for everyone who keeps on doing it. It, it, Sometimes it, it... I, I come in schools or I, I, I see people talking about it or I, I also now tutor some uh, school direct um, uh, trainees. Mm. And I think my experience as a teacher, even though it's in the Netherlands, etc., you know, you still know, I think, your, your stuff well enough to, uh, to, to give some really good advice. Uh, but I also realize that for, na- for this moment in, in time, for me, you know, I, it it was it was good enough the fourteen years. I'm I'm happy now doing other stuff, and I think yes. um, that that's also important to just basically listen. Yeah, this sounds like a Roxette song, right? Listen to your heart. But, <laughs> but maybe you can maybe you can edit it underneath it. But it is it is it is, it is truly uh, the case. I would say um, I also got a bad case of glandary fever at one point. I think I was pushing myself a little bit too much yeah. when I was doing the PhD part time and I was yes. teaching. Yes. I was head of ICT, and then I also went to local politics. And it wow. was just, I, it was just too much. Uh, and then after I finished all of that, right? Uh, basically, my body gave up for a couple of months. Mm. I think glandary fever does that, uh, and it's all fine now. I never really uh, had an issue there, but it, it did also taught teach me that you need to take care of yourself when it yes. comes to mental health and all kinds yes. of choices. Um, it's really important. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Fantastic answer that. That's brilliant, that Christian. Right. Well, um, it's kind of over to you now. We've we it, when we were exchanging emails for getting you on the show, I, I was very much interested in in hearing about what you wanted to talk about. And I, as you well know, I did 10, 10 episodes with uh, researchers from Loughborough uh, University, and they they went down really well with with both teachers and non teachers alike because. One of the things I really want to do with the podcast, and I know you're keen for this, is to kind of bridge the gap between the research that happens and how it translates into classroom practice. So um, you've chosen three topics. So the first one is kind of, your, you've, you've, you've labelled it as aspects of your research. So do you, want, do you want to start us off, Christian, and we'll see where this takes us? Yeah, that, like all your questions, they are quite challenging, but not not so much because the questions are difficult, but because... I think I summarized it to my colleagues when we are doing a round of what are you doing, right? And then it I, turns out I'm all over the place when it comes to my research interests. So you know, I, I find I find a lot of things I find a lot of things interesting, but it is interesting that they are most of them are probably related to uh, mathematics, or at least half of them. Let's let's yeah. let's not exaggerate. So. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought it made sense. You did a great series, I, I think, with Loughborough as well. Um, and there are there are a couple of people there because I, I would say it's the premier play. I, of course, Southampton is great as well, but Loughborough, I would say, has a great concentration of great mathematics educators and also such a great link between design and you know hardcore psychological research, which is really mm. quite uh, uh, special. Um, and Southampton, my specialty, I would say. So one thing I recently also did a talk for at AMET, the NEMA conference, was about uh, the wordiness of mathematics. So I'm mm. doing a bit of work uh, on, on that. It's always been a little bit of a bugbear of mine that when people talk about PISA, uh, we're not really talking about mathematics. We're talking about mathematics education. We're talking about mathematical literacy. And of course, you can say, well, mathematical literacy also is mathematics, but there is a clear difference, I would say, between, you know, the basic skills um, and also, uh, you know, uh, conceptual knowledge. um, And without uh, preferring one over the other, because they work iteratively, right? They they both reinforce each other. You need your basic skills to understand things better. And uh, if you understand things better, then your skills uh, also become more meaningful. It is really quite interesting to see that mathematics has become so wordy and lots of contexts, authentic contexts. And I'm a little bit worried about that, uh, especially because for some students, this would mean that they it's basically double jeopardy, mm. that you if you're not so good at reading, then you're also going to suffer a bit when it comes to mathematics performance, especially the very wordy tasks that you need to do. And of course, you can train all of that, like you can train everything if you practice a lot, etc., and meaningful practice, worked examples. Um, but it does seem that it's not just mathematics that is then being tested, but also uh, wordiness, you know, uh, reading literacy, uh, writing literacy, um, they're very much entwined. So that that's one thing. 
And can I just ask on that, Christian? Um, yeah, of where, course. Where, where have you seen this this happen? Are we talking kind of GCSEs, A level, or is it is it just PISA? Where, where are you seeing this this increase in wordiness uh, specifically? I I would say across the board, to be honest. Um, I, and again, I must say that uh, I, I've not covered all of these aspects. Sure. I especially uh, in in this case have looked from a research perspective more uh, towards Tim's and PISA. Um, but if I recall, for example, my final exams in the Netherlands, uh, where I did uh, something called Mathematics B, which you know was sort of the the more abstract algebra exams, uh, and I compare my exams, the exams that I sat, uh, with the exams that we have now in the Netherlands, mm. then you know it was one page in my time. And it was four pages now with lots mm. of contexts and lots of unpicking. Um, so, and and to be honest, if I if I look at exam questions here in England, the GCC and A level, then uh, A level perhaps a bit less. Yeah. Uh, although it you know depends a little bit, uh, but certainly GCSE there there is quite there is still some there are stories around it. You know, yes. there's always a context about. Uh, even something simple like marbles, right? You, yes. you, you could simply ask, uh, what is the probability of drawing something from something? Or you can have a very big you know, story about a, a football team who needs to find all the combinations on the <laughs> yeah. ticket. Of, yeah. And again, you could. I'm not saying that perhaps that skill of uh, disentangling language, etc., isn't worthwhile, but... It, it is a different type of, or something is added to that type of mathematics than simply the abstract sum, for example, that you would ask. This is why I, I prefer, personally prefer TIMS, for example, in my research a bit more than PISA. So PISA test, uh, hopefully your listeners know, uh, PISA test and TIMS uh, are two international large-scale assessments. Um Tim's is in uh, primary school and in secondary school, and PISA is 15-year-olds. Um, and PISA is a bit more mathematical literacy and more problem-solving oriented, and Tim's is a bit more linked to the curriculum. Um, and I like the latter more simply for that reason, because it seems to me that it links much better with basically what teachers are teaching in the classroom. They're teaching a curriculum. They're not, uh, um, they, they have a, a national curriculum or they, or, you know, preferably in my case, I would say they have, maybe have a textbook that they use to teach stuff. Um, Tim's distinguishes basic skills that you need to know and some that you uh, where you apply stuff or some reasoning some so at least they make a distinction between these different types and PISA has much larger problem solving um, uh, some so I would say that it's across the board to be honest this whole uh, tendency to become more wordy and as I said I'm not uh, fundamentally against but I do think that we sometimes forget that that this double jeopardy then can take mm-hmm. place uh, and that would be quite unfortunate, of course, because, you know, if someone simply finds it difficult to read yes, uh, and they perform worse in mathematics because of it, when actually they're pretty good at abstract algebra or something like that, yes. then it would really be a, bit, a shame, I would say. Yeah. 
And where do you think the drive comes from, Christian? Is it is it this belief that mathematics is only useful if it's linked to the real world and linked to context? Do you think that's where this this change has come from, or is there something else driving this move to to more wordiness and more context? No, I think that is the main driver, to be honest. I know a little bit about the history of Pisa, for example, where I think, you know, I, I use the word authentic and that there is an idea that um, if you use a certain context, that then it's, it's uh, more, um, you know, linked to the real world. So real world mathematics. The Netherlands is quite famous for its realistic mathematics education, which is actually a mistranslation because realistic does not mean realistic context, but is a, a wrong, at least that's what I heard about it, a wrong translation of the word word to realize, so that you realize something. So even if you realize something abstract, that is perfectly possible, but it has been linked to realistic, which is quite unfortunate, uh, such a mistranslation, I would say. Um, and I think they were quite influential in the, in the, the beginning of the PISA development, etc., etc. So, you know, perhaps a set of um, bad luck, <laughs> mistranslations, but also an appeal to sort of want to link it to the real world, become authentic. I, I think you, uh, most listeners probably know the work of Dan Meyer as well, and he talked, he's talked about pseudo-contexts, I think, previously. Also, lots of frustration in, you know, friend and foe when it comes to the incredible... Um, uh, yeah, the the pseudo context that they are not realistic at all. You know, when I make this joke about this football team, etc. Well, who's going to use that, right? Or a mobile phone subscription? Uh, who's really going to calculate this when they're standing in the uh, in in the supermarket or in the three store? I'm I'm not so sure. So, but I think it's this twin this combination of these factors that probably led to a push towards that. That's interesting. I um, I did like a spin-off podcast series for AQA called Inside Exams, where it wasn't math specific, uh, but I interviewed examiners and people from AQA who write exams, mark exams, and so on. And it was really interesting because one of the, re- I, I wasn't aware of this, but one of the requirements when writing a GCSE exam is that there's got to be some contextual questions that haven't been explicitly covered in the curriculum or or a school scheme of work because it's supposed to test students' ability to interpret a, a novel scenario. So this means that examiners are then having to come up with more and more bizarre context because like picking marbles out of a bag, well, that's been done before. So forget that one. So let's have something more. And it's just getting more and more bizarre with every year that passes. The contexts are going to get stranger and stranger because of this requirement to be unpredictable. And as you say, there are two aspects to that. There's the, the literacy aspect, but also there's the students kind of understanding that they take from the real world that comes into their maths exams with them. And that may be useful for the context, but it also may be quite damaging to them because if they have some understanding of this context, how it actually works in the real world, and then they come into their maths exam and meet this simplified, watered-down version of it, then actually all that extra knowledge they bring in might might actually not help them with the question and do quite the opposite, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, to be honest, I think it does exactly that. Uh, ignorance is bliss in that sense, yes, right? Yes. The less you know, 
the 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 better probably because otherwise you might even mistake you know the the context that you know uh, yes. uh, uh, with the context that is in front of you and you simply just need to follow the data that are in front of you and the numbers that are there but this and this applies broader to be honest i re- recall um that i did my english exam a long time ago of course um, in the in the Netherlands, and I knew a little bit more about the Thatcher years in England. And this was a text about Thatcher and, and the Thatcher years. And I, I really had a, a tough time and certainly made more mistakes simply disentangling what I knew about Thatcher and what was in the text in front of me. I needed to stick to exactly that text. And I I thought that was really difficult to do, and I didn't manage to do it. When actually, if if you knew nothing, then you know, uh, then you were you were at an advantage. I think that certainly the the case here as well. And I know uh, that in uh, Pisa, that used to also they now have quite str- stringent rules. I think about contexts, uh, but they used to have quite an issue with that. For example, that uh, you know, uh, even if you've got some sort of landlocked country without beaches that you could still get a, a question about sailboats you know sailing into the sunset which which um there's quite a, a famous paper that tried to look at at you know whether the difficulty of questions um really was constant across the countries and for obvious reasons it wasn't really because in some countries they would do better it is linked to the curriculum but also even the context that they are used to in certain countries. And I think they've tried to solve it to a, an extent since that paper, but it just goes to show that uh, the sort of country context in this case has such a big influence on how you approach uh, a task. And this is often, I would say, underestimated a, a bit when it comes to language. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And just, just a final point on this that I, I picked up from speaking to the, the exam writers, the examiners, it's just a nightmare, all the things they had to consider. Like I, I went in thinking it was very naive, very naively thinking, well, you just think I'm going to ask a question on quadratic equations, a question on fractions, and I just go through my list and I'm sorted. But of course, you've got requirements for the assessment objectives, and then you've got requirements for different contexts, different literacy levels. But then when you're writing a context, as you say, you've got to make sure that context is fair for everybody. And I remember a famous example from Edexcel maybe three or four years ago, and you may remember this, Christian, where um, in a higher tier paper, they had a contextual question about tickets in a theatre. And they mentioned the word circle, tickets in the circle, which is a part of the theatre. But obviously, kids who've never been to the theatre, well, like, what, what, why the hell's a circle coming into play here? And then th- thinking they need to draw a shape and so on. And it's like it's it's no surprise that that things like that sneak in whenever you've got to consider everything and, and to try and make context equally relevant and accessible to all students. It's it's a near impossible job, isn't it? It's it's very difficult, certainly, and and you know. In that sense, the more abstract, you know, the one pager yeah. for an exam. I, I think the question one of my exams in the in the day were something like uh, study the following function, and we knew that if it said study the function in Dutch, it meant that you had to do, you know, uh, the first derivative, second derivative, roots. You basically had to do a whole page of stuff or three pages full of stuff in one line because you were trained to do that. 
Uh, that, that, of course, you know, also has its downsides, but it certainly uh, meant that you own, what the only thing you needed was study the function and then some kind of function. And that then that was it, basically. It was a one-liner and you would be busy for 30 minutes. Uh, so, uh, And I do think that sometimes we, we've lost a little bit of, of exactly that. Uh, so, so, you know, I would be the last one who would say, that page is full of practice, uh, equation solving, et cetera, et cetera, would be a bad thing because I think it's really important that these basic skills are up to date. And that then will also help towards, uh, you know, let's call it problem solving or, or whatever, of, of larger tasks where these basic skills really come in handy. And then they work work into each other as well, that when you start understanding them a bit better, you know, symmetry axis of a parabola, etc., etc., then you you start to make sense of the, the whole mathematical realm rather than just uh, the wordiness or the context or just the basic skills. They really need to reinforce each other, I would say. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, was there anything else from this first thing you wanted to touch upon about your aspects um, of your research, Christian? Well, um, I wrote one more thing down, uh, mm. and that has to do with the curriculum. So another thing that um, I'm looking at quite closely is the role that opportunities to learn. So that that is a um, quite a, a solid definition. I I, I couldn't. I couldn't rec- recite it here <laughs> verbatim, to be honest, but uh, from uh, it stems from the 60s, 70s, uh, Carroll school model. But opportunity to learn, let's say, you know, how much time is real time is there actually for learning in the classroom when you take away all the all the noise, you know, what instructional time is then left and the role that that uh, this plays and also the interplay with uh, curriculum aspects. So one of the things that I, I did in a, in a project with Japan and Hong Kong is look at geometry education, because I think actually in England, there's there is not as much attention to geometry as they pay in Hong Kong and Japan, and especially Japan, I would say. Um, and um, you can, the interesting thing is that you can link it to opportunities to learn, but not one-to-one to how much time is spent on a topic. And that, I think, is the most interesting thing because we, we often have the idea that, you know, if we get more hours to teach stuff, then they're going to do better. And that actually wasn't the case. Uh, so uh, if you simply look at um, countries like Japan, then they uh, the way that they actually deliver the curriculum, and also, by the way, and it, this will be uh, something we'll touch upon later, the role of textbooks again, for example, uh, but also the way they do their lessons. I've been very influenced by a now rather old study, the Tim's video study, uh, which looked at classroom practices across the world. And if you then simply compared, uh, you know, a U.S. classroom with a Japanese classroom, there was much more, you know, high interactive whole classroom teaching going on with lots of uh, students going to the front of the class, working on the board, questioning by the teacher, answering by the teacher, sometimes also choral answers. Um, so, so let's say what some people uh, would say, uh, Rosenshine is one of the names that I think it has 
has been mentioned a lot in your podcast by all mm. kinds of different people. Yes. But that stuff already was taking place, you know, long before that was popularized, of course. And especially also in Asia, this whole classroom interactive teaching was, I would say, really the, the norm. So, you know, uh, one field, I uh, one area I'm really interested in and I'm uh, doing more, uh, did an article, which I will give you the link. It's an open access article, so all your, all your listeners can access it as well, which actually looked at this geometry education and the link with opportunities to learn. I, that's another uh, thing, what, two of the 20 things that I'm, I'm looking at probably. So just two questions from that, Christian. So um, in terms of kind of curriculum time um, spent learning mathematics, where does where does the UK sit in relation to, to some other countries that you've looked at in terms of the time that, that students tend to get? Are we above average, below average? Um, it was, I think it was slightly above average from the top of my head, but especially in the in the project that I had with Japan, it was interesting that it was much more than Japan actually gave. Mm. But the performance and achievement was much higher in Japan. Yes. So th- this is what I mean with this, almost this paradox where, well, maybe not a paradox because, you know, it's about the quality of teaching. Mm. It's not about the quantity of teaching. So um, when you look numbers-wise, it didn't really seem uh, such a big deal, to be honest. But then, when you looked at the at the at the data more closely, it seemed as if this quality of, and and this still needs to be unpicked. I'm speculating a little bit yes. when I say that it's about the whole classroom interactive teaching because I know from other sources that it can be highly effective. Um, that that actually is the 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 thing that sprang out most. So I would say that England doesn't have less or more necessarily. Mm-hmm but it's not as effective as it is in some other countries across the world. That's interesting. And well, a follow up to that before I ask my, my different question, if we take someone like Japan, who perhaps is spending less kind of curriculum time on mathematics, but, but doing better, do you have a sense of where they're spending their extra time? Is it just that students are spending less time in school generally, or are they, that is that time being reallocated for another subject or, or another discipline? Um. Again, I'm, I'm need, I need to dive deeper, to be honest. I, I don't know the exact uh, numbers. It's not. It's certainly not um, allocated to other things. And I must admit that one thing that is really hard to account for, um, and which actually is the focus of, of hopefully my next uh, article or my next uh, study with PISA data, um, is shadow education. So one of the things, uh, and and lots of people then say, well, of course, they're doing great in in Korea and in China because they are studying until 10 in these cram schools, right? Uh, And there is is some truth to that, but it's also notoriously difficult to, um, to, to study because it all happens in the realm of um, home, really. And home is much harder to study than uh, a school context uh, in this case because you simply need to know whether, you know, how much, um, whether it's related also to um, socioeconomic status because it costs money, et cetera, et cetera. So just to answer your question, no, I don't think it's necessarily uh, uh, more or is allocated somewhere else. I think it simply is the case that it is, 
is less overall, less time. But of course, there is a whole other part that is much more evolved, let's say, in Asia, which is these cram schools uh, where students uh, go to. And also, uh, in some Asian countries, you've got uh, quite, well, even more high stakes exams. And exams are a very favorite topic at the moment here in England, of course, as well, uh, or actually the absence of them uh, because of uh, COVID. Um, but the, the the stakes in, for example, China, when it comes to um, final exams, is just there are so many students, of course, that for one, but also only a limited number of places in the in the high end universities. So um, I, I would say that the combination of these cram schools uh, and also uh, high stakes exam systems will certainly distort a lot of the stuff that goes on in schools. And this is a, uh, a perennial challenge, I think, for most uh, researchers, really, because how do you control for yes. all that stuff? Uh, so that is, that, that is something that I really need to look into uh, more, and hopefully other people will st- look into more as well. That's interesting. Uh, interesting. Uh, one more question just on this, Christian, about, about geometry. And I don't actually know what my question is here, but just kind of a, just a general observation. So um, ge- I find geometry really interesting. Um, I'm just going to completely speculate on this, but I, I think there is a pretty close correlation between how well a student would do on number topics compared to how well they would do on algebra topics. I think they're quite closely related, just in my, in my experience. And I think there's a pretty close relationship as well between number algebra and statistics in terms of how well students do. The, uh, most of those are built on, on, a, on a number system. Whereas geometry, I always see it as a little bit standalone. And I've, I've taught many students who would really struggle numerically. But actually, whenever it comes to picturing kind of shape and space and visualizing things in 3D and angles and so on, are really, really strong. So it interests me that, that you say that um, other countries, possibly Japan, would spend more time on the geometry. And also, um, I remember when uh, Dr. Helen Williams was on the show for the first time, she was furious about the fact that a lot of geometry has been taken out of early years um, with a focus on number. And I always think of, I mean, for a student like me, that's great news because I'm terrible at shape and space. I can't, can't visualize things at all. But it must, I just get the feeling that kind of would disadvantage quite a few students for whom maths for them is just seen as numbers and algebra, something very abstract that they struggle with. Whereas if you strip out the geometry, that's taken out something that they potentially could really thrive upon. As I say, I don't really have a question there, just, just an observation. No, no, no. So I, well, I, I, think, I think I would say two things. One is the variety, I think, uh, certainly is important because otherwise uh, it's just indeed the same old, same old, right? Yeah. You get equations solving and then quadratic <laughs> equations and uh, rewriting of thirds, you get yes. all that stuff. So I think for variety, I think it is important. Um, uh, and I think you do a lot of stuff. Uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm now maybe extrapolating a little bit too much, but you've done a lot of stuff with variation theory, for example. Uh, and I know that is slightly different, but I do think that, you know, if you, uh, and, and thinking about interleaving as well uh, from a cognitive science perspective, then, you know, um, if you have a bit of variety, and actually cognitive load theory also has, a, I think, a variation effect, for example. So 
a bit of variety actually can be quite helpful if it simply yes. sort of breaks through the monotony, yes. etc. One topic, you have a different topic and then go back again. I think it's simply necessary to have some variety. So that's one argument. The second one, I would even link to some of the stuff you did with Lovebro because Lovebro is also, I would say, a center. There are some very strong researchers there on the spatial skills, especially mm. in the in primary school. So I would agree that it, it is quite foundational. Uh, I'm actually, and I, I didn't write it down because we're now sort of organically getting there. There is this famous Utrecht University, Freudenthal Institute, uh, applet uh, that was in the, I think, the national strategies uh, decades ago with these building blocks. So you had these houses. Yes. Yeah, building say, houses. Building yeah, houses. I know the one. Yeah. Everyone in the UK seems to know this applet. And, <laughs> and actually, this is, uh, so, so the the programmer comes from Utrecht University. It's Peter Bone. Um, and he's, he's a good friend. I did my PhD at Utrecht University wow. as well. So that's, um, and one of the things that I was always so surprised about is that everyone in the UK seems to know this applet and love it as well, <laughs> but no research has been done with it with regard to spatial skills. Right. So, um, uh, so, so one of the things that I, uh, and this is a paper that I've been trying to finish for years now, I must admit, so it's a little bit a slow paper, let's call it that. <laughs> but it does show a little bit, so so it's a, in year sevens with um, the Building Blocks app uh, and a, a randomized uh, design, etc., to see if, um, if they actually uh, would become better at mental rotation skills, because you have to do a lot of rotations, uh, visualizations, and then, you know, uh, look at what, the, of course, the, the the building looks like from all sides. Um, and I think that also shows that I, f I firmly believe, also based on the literature that I know, that spatial skills are more broadly important as foundation for more than just uh, mental rotation skills. It also has to do with how flexibly you sometimes manipulate, you know, the positions of more uh, linear expressions like an equation. Um, I do think that the evidence for this is not the, the strongest it can be, but at the very least, I would say there is enough to not just throw it away with the bathwater, which is sort of happening now. And I think that's also what Helen referred to when it comes to the early learning goals. So I, 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 I would agree with that uh, for both variety and also because they are so foundational, certainly in primary school. But if you, if, if you could, you know, if you could invest a couple of hours, you know, doing these building blocks, uh, applets with the views, I firmly believe that um, that is a, quite a meaningful task to do. It's also fun, by the way. There's nothing wrong with things being fun as well and programmed really well. They're also online, so you could even give it as homework, right, in a, some kind of meaningful environment like diagnostic questions or, you know, Hegarty maths. Yes. So so I, I do think that it has gone a little bit too far when it comes to, you know, these spatial skills um, being snowed under a bit, uh, which is a shame, I would say. Yeah, that's fascinating. I've, I've never, it sounds stupid to say it, but I've, I've never thought, I've never made that link of being kind of spatially aware and that helping with like algebraic manipulation and so on, vis visualizing. I guess it's just because I, I don't kind of see it that way myself, but I could I could think of lots of students off the top of my head now 
for whom would have a very visual approach to it. And by not helping the students develop those skills, it's not just going to harm their geometry, it's going to potentially harm their algebra and number. That's that's fascinating, that. The other thing, Christian, is we'll have lots of younger listeners who'll be like, what the heck are these building houses? So I'll be yeah. linking to those because it's going to blow their mind. One of one of the best applets I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I agree. It's it's And it's so lovely to... I sometimes tweet about it and then you immediately get a whole waterfall of love for that particular applet. And I, I do think that many thought that it was lost forever because yeah. it's Java, it wasn't working yes. anymore. But there, there is a HTML5 version uh, which could be accessed. And I think Colleen Young blogged yeah. about it. So I yes, so, so maybe that can be linked in the, in the description. Yeah. I'll do that. That's superb. Right, Kristen, well, let's move on to the second thing that you wanted to talk about. Now, this 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 fascinated me when I when I read this on, on, the, on the shared Google Doc. Um, how we should deal with new and old research. So talk to me about this, Christine. What, what's on your mind here? Well, um, I'm, I'm quite active uh, on social media, and I think that a lot of good has come from it. Lots of teachers are writing and blogging. There are lots of researchers or more and more researchers also, you know, communicating. So I think on the whole, I think that's, that's really good. But I also sometimes uh, worry a little bit or get annoyed by how things that are complex and where the answer basically should be, it depends, right? <laughs> it always, the, I know it's a cop-out, but the yeah. answer often is it depends, that they can be reduced to basically, you know, black and white sound bites, yes. which some people say, well, that's just the price you pay for going on search. But I, I, I don't want that, right? One, I would say that one of the reasons I, I, I was on Twitter before I came to the UK, so I think I was used to the, you know, the sometimes extreme language, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. So th- that wasn't really the issue, but I, I to wonder, you know, how we can best try and integrate this, or get this marketplace or this place where teachers and researchers meet, how we can how we can do that. Uh, I think in the description I also wrote about, you know, I, I write stuff together actually with Ryan Campbell. He's a, a deputy head of an international school in Jakarta. Um, so... so you know, in an international school setting, writing some stuff for impact from the Chartered College's mm, uh, mm. journal. I I'm, I frequent research ed quite often uh, and sometimes then also get annoyed. Oh, why is everyone talking about this? And then I, and then I suggest, <laughs> shall I do a presentation that sort of goes counter to what everyone is talking about? So I'm, I'm sure that I'm a bit contrarian to a, to a certain extent, but it, I think it comes from the, a good place or the place that uh, wonders how you can find the balance between uh, you've got some research findings. And I think you've talked about that as well with lots of people. How do you then translate it to the classroom? A teacher will say, well, you'll, you'll just let me do it. But then sometimes, you know, things could be bastardized completely yes but then and then when a teacher on social media says oh but it works for me you know should i then shut up and then think well if it works for you then who am i to say that it's not completely correct what you're saying or the other way around when uh, i constantly say well it depends it depends i can also understand that that might be rather annoying right it's (laughs) what, what, what do you what do you learn from that from 
someone constantly saying, oh, but wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> but I think it's both needed, to be honest. I know that, for example, Dylan William uh, often cites uh, box boxes uh, about models. I think all models are wrong. Some models are useful or something along those lines. I know Dan Willingham, also, of course, a favorite on social media, uh, and he's written a lot of good stuff and some stuff that I, I might be critical about, but he's written about um, what what is the role of theory, for example, in teacher training. Um, they don't have to know all the intricacies, perhaps, of, of, of the models. But then he goes on to say, just as long as they don't mislead. And... Well, that, that's already a little bit an opaque term because I would say that, you know, uh, and, and this brings br brings me, I think I mentioned cognitive load theory. If, if some of the principles are translated as reduce load, that's basically the big summary, then something is going wrong because, you know, that's not what it says. Uh, and some other person might say, well, reduce extraneous load, then perhaps it's slightly better already. But I mean... There is a discussion to be had uh, with regard to, you know, how detailed um, do teachers need to consume research? What is the role of the researchers that create it? What is the role of intermediaries? Lots of uh, edu books, and they're doing a great job of translating some of the terms, but they're also sometimes uh, doing a bad job at translating some of the terms. Uh, and I think we've, we've all seen examples of this. And I have even thought provokingly uh, said at research at um, I think it was the one in the Netherlands, and also actually the the no also the English one the national conference that uh, a, a presentation called this is the new myth where I thought provokingly put some of the things that you know we hold dearly or or uh, social media holds dearly at the moment to basically uh, suggest well maybe you know the, the 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 things we believe in now are the myth of the future um which i think um is always a risk and we can only yes. prevent that from happening by talking about it and not shutting down and saying well this is the truth and this is not the truth that's really a very dangerous route i would say so that's where this this topic came from basically yeah it's it's a great it's a great one to discuss christian um i think I, i'd like to pick up the conversation thinking about um kind of what I would call kind of key findings from research. And I always like the phrase best bets. So do you think, is it fair to say that there are some, even though we know research is incredibly complex, we know that often it's very hard, if not impossible to replicate the classroom context when we're doing research. There's so many different variables at play. Do you think it's safe to say there are certain best bets that teachers can take from research and apply to their own classroom? And if so, what, what would some of those be? Hmm. Yeah, I hmm. I would probably not use the word best, but replace it by good, good okay. bets. Well, that would be that. my first, but that would be my first step. <laughs> okay, <laughs> when I, likes, when I am in power, you know, <laughs> this is what's going to happen. So, okay, okay. Um, yeah, I'll approve that change. That's fine. <laughs> um, and I think there are so. It's it's interesting because you know uh, the the first thing that comes to mind is that I've I've always liked uh, testing and I know some people mm. immediately now get 
their hair is up and others think, oh, wow, I didn't expect that because this guy is this progressive from social media. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, I, let's contextualize it a little bit. I'm, I'm used to a situation in the Netherlands where I basically for every chapter in the textbook that we, we went through, uh, we did a small test at the end, and it will all ca- it would all count towards a year mark at the end. So quite a lot of testing actually. And if, when I thought, well, they are missing some of the basic skills, I would do an extra test that would have a, a lower weight. You know, a small little test to do. Um, so I've never really understood the antipathy towards testing. But I also now know that it is a big thing, right? It's retrieval practice, testing effect, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I don't want to downplay, you know, the, the discovery of, of uh, testing as being something worthwhile. But I am thinking, well, you know, we did this for quite some time in the, in the Netherlands. And I think, I think that happens quite a lot. In, in the sense that uh, a lot of the, the best teachers probably in England were already doing lots of AFL and formative testing in all kinds of different ways. Um, so I would say uh, testing, but then in a broader sense, I think that that's, that's a good bet. I've, I've always enjoyed it. I thought it was useful. I think students also find it useful and the, Students who didn't like it or they who scored low, you can also take them aside and give them a bit more support and you know explain a little bit more. So another you know word that is almost forbidden in certain areas of social media is differentiation. But you know differentiating in the sense that if someone is struggling, surely every teacher then thinks about how can I support this student better, right? And then other people say, no, that's not differentiation. Well, it sort of is, in at least according to me. Uh, so who 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 would be who would wouldn't agree with something along those lines, right? And all the other stuff, in my view, is more yeah, it's more pointless debate, really. If we can agree on the fact that you want to make sure that someone is not left behind, right? And you want to provide them with support. So um, yeah, I think testing is is pretty good, but I am formed by my own context, right? I I have uh, I have this from good authority on good authority from the Netherlands, I think. But this is a different country, people say, and they can certainly can't work here, etc. That I don't believe in at all. I think it can work perfectly fine. So testing effect would be, it, let's call it testing effect, but in a broader sense. I think that's a good bet. That's a good bet. Yeah, I think it's a good bet too. And I, th- I think it's interesting that pe- people take their own kind of experience and baggage along with them when, when they hear testing. And certainly myself, if you'd have told me that testing's a good idea I don't know, five, six years ago, I would I would have been a bit reluctant to agree because I'm picturing high stakes tests. I'm picturing kind of end of term tests. I'm picturing high pressure for students. I'm picturing assigning grades, maybe moving students to different classes, contacting parents. Whereas now I see very much kind of whether you call them low stakes testing or just whether it's just formative assessment, that regular check of where students are at and that opportunity to retrieve, that now seems so fundamental to how I would teach that Mm -hmm. I almost can't believe 
I wasn't, yeah, didn't see it that way before. So I think, yeah, I think it's got an unfortunate label testing that it, it for, for a lot of teachers, it immediately they think, no, no, that's not something I agree with. Um, yeah, so I'll, t- I'll definitely agree with you there, Christian, on testing as a good bet. Um, and anything else? I'm intrigued if there's anything else that would make your list of list of good bets. Well, let, let me, for, I, I want to say uh, the uh, say something about what you mentioned, because yeah, one thing course, that I have noticed is this, this high stake stuff. I do think mm. that English society as a whole is re- very far too reliant on high stakes mm. uh, moments in the school trajectory to be honest uh, when it whether it comes to uh, you know a levels that you need to get and marks yes. that you need to get to get into university and uh, I know a little bit about the history uh, I, because I wasn't here but I know about the history how polytechnics became universities etc the rankings of universities as well yes so this whole high stakes uh, malarkey uh, i do th- <laughs> and and i'm not saying that it doesn't exist in other places surely it, it does of course but i do think that it's perhaps slightly worse here in england um and um the reason and i'm certainly not against exams for example but i i've had a couple of discussions about you know exams and coursework, I know that lots of people have very uh, passionate views on uh, the the blessings or the non-blessings yes, of coursework, yes. and also controlled assessments, you know, how can you t- trust schools to organize that themselves and then mark it as well. And I, 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 I just, at one point on social media, I, I said something about this, and I got quite passionate responses. And I understand it better now from a historical perspective that so many teachers feel about it here in England in that way. Mm. But I find this rather un- unfortunate that it has, you know, come so far that that we cannot trust a school. At least th- this is what it feels to me like. And I don't want to sound like, uh, you know, the Dutch guy uh, trash-talking <laughs> English uh, people here. But that that there are certain experiences with the way things have been organized that we cannot trust schools to really do a professional job when it comes to doing school exams, for example. Yes. Schools set in the exam, or let's say serious mock exams that count towards a yes. mark. We, yes. we cannot because there are uh, schools cannot be trusted and teachers can't be trusted and they can't be trusted because high stakes uh, because they need to get into uh, post-16 schooling and then university. So they will try to, you know, maximize the scores that students will get. And I I underestimated this and I now understand much better why uh, teachers are saying this when I just sort of, I think, report on something that sounds quite sensible. But I understand it now that it's mainly in my view, caused by this extremely high stakes element where in the end, students want to get into university and they can only get into the so-called best universities if they get the highest marks. So there is this whole society almost geared towards, you know, the highest marks, the highest scores, all must have prizes. uh, And that's something I really still have to cope with, to be honest. I still find it quite challenging, this uh, aspect. Anyway, I just wanted to react to your high stakes uh, uh, comment because I do think that's really a very influential element. And I don't even know if I'm, you know, my heart says, well, I don't like it so much. But, you know, a country is, you know, a product of its history. So uh, I don't even know know for sure. But I do think it's an element that 
should be studied a bit more, to be honest. That's interesting, Chris. Some I good like that. Bets. Yeah, give me some good, good bets. bets. We need another good bet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, what's another good bet? Um, I, so, you know, I, I follow all the rages and the trends and I follow on social media. So I, I you know, I, I would say I know quite a lot of things about cognitive load theory, a lot of things about curriculum, etc. And I also know that many people think that I'm overly critical about knowledge rich curriculum. I hate the term. Let me just get that straight first. I don't like the term. But up and I also disagree with quite a few things that Edie Hirsch, for example, says. But if there's one thing that I think is a good bet, then it's a coherent curriculum. And I don't even think that um, you you have to that it even the content of the curriculum, I would say, is secondary to the fact that it needs to be a coherent curriculum. If that makes mm. sense. Yeah. Um, and there is a very interesting uh, paper uh, about uh, core knowledge curriculum that in the USA. It's a relatively old one, I must admit. But I, I mention it more symbolically because I don't. I wouldn't say that it's the strongest piece of evidence, but I think it does symbolize a lot of what I'm saying now. So there is a um, um, there is a paper about the core knowledge. Um, the language and arts, I think. It's it's not maths-oriented, uh, inspired by Edie Hirsch. And it it was a successful program. And they actually did some uh, process uh, implementation follow-up. So they wanted to check how well the, the guidance, you know, that was given, uh, how well the teachers actually followed up this. And this is really important, of course, because, you know, if they don't listen to the guidance anyway and they just do something, then you want to have fidelity, right, yes. in the program and how it is executed. And what was so interesting is that it is it is often used as evidence to say, you see, it works. But after they actually asked the teachers, and Edie Hirsch, uh, I think is it's fair to say that he has a sort of explicit instruction um, preference for his uh, yes. materials. Uh, after uh, studying how the teachers dealt with it, it actually was a big mix of <laughs> ways that the teachers had used all the materials. Some had even used the materials in a very inquiry-oriented fashion. Uh, yes. um, and it still worked. So I'm not, I don't want to disregard, I know some people will be shouting and say, well, read my book or this and that, or well, you should read a little bit more Rose and Shine, etc. I know all of it. That's not the issue. But what I found fascinating here is that um, it seemed as if the fact that they were approaching it in a coherent way with vision was more important than whether they yes. used explicit instruction yes. or they used inquiry. Yes. And I know this 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 will create some violent reactions uh, in some place, but I, I I I do fervently believe that a good bet is that you need this a coherent approach when you are in a school, etc. And I think actually many people also, talk, when you're talking about behavior management, etc., it's not necessarily all the minute of, of how you're doing it, but that you are doing it in a consistent and coherent way. That, ah, that would be something I want to mention. 
Well, that's interesting. Just just on that, Christian, because that, that fascinates me. That well, whenever you particularly again, we're, we're both big social media uh, uh, users, so we, we both see the the two extremes of the debate. It can often get quite nasty. Um, so if you take the kind of and again, it's it's not good to give labels, but if we take the kind of explicit instruction and the inquiry approaches, often fairly sensible people's response to that will be, well, you need a bit of both. You need a bit of explicit instruction and you need a bit of inquiry. It's this this healthy diet. Are, are you arguing that actually that that's not the way because you're not getting that coherence, that it's actually better if you either go all in with explicit instruction or you go all in with inquiry? No, because I think you can also be coherent in, in the mix. Okay, <laughs> I see. So, yes. so, so uh, uh, but you just need to talk about it, right? I, th- I think one of the things that I think is strong, for example, about the textbook is that uh, there is a, a, a common hymn sheet that you're singing from yes, as a department, yes. for example. Yes. And that yes. just works, I think, across the department. And I think similar things basically uh, advantages similar types of advantages can can happen um when you are working school-wide or when you walk you know if you're talking about a group of schools just a consistent and coherent approach i don't really believe that students you know become confused if they if they don't get the same approach all the time because they can also get used to uh the the um a little bit of inconsistency. It sounds a little bit strange, perhaps, but, you know, students are not crazy. Children are not crazy. And people uh, talk about, for example, a consistent behavior uh, management. Yeah, on the whole, I think it needs to be consistent. But it's also not the case that the world, you know, uh, completely explodes if you are once favoring uh, one of the children over someone else. They also understand that that sort of stuff happens, I think. So I, I think you can be consistent uh, in in this balanced approach as well. And I think personally, if I look at the, uh, at the evidence that I know, I completely disagree with people who would say that one approach always works better than the other. And they would immediately say, but I'm not saying always, just most of the time. Uh, but I think that is so contextual as well that it's really hard uh, to, to say. Uh, uh, and I would love to simply give the prime, primacy to the you know craft knowledge and the professionality of the teacher you know, are you really going to say to someone who has tried something that should work but is not working for them? Are you really going to say, well, you're doing something wrong then? You know, that's quite harsh, I would say. Or the other way around. Something is working and there's uh, and they're saying, well, it's uh, working for this and this and this reason. Uh, well, maybe it is, but maybe it's because, you know, uh, you're in, uh, I don't know, private school or maybe it is because your your students are younger or they are older. And I don't want context to be this, you know, cop out uh, completely um, because I think it is important to, to keep all these things in mind. But I do think that a lot of it is so contextual that it's really hard to give good bets that work across the board. So that's why I mentioned two that I think are are quite close to being good bets. But a lot of the other stuff that other people might mention, I'm not, I think it is risky to sort of take it as uh, a good bet 
because, you know, tomorrow you will encounter a context where it turns out not to work very well. And every teacher, I'm not crazy either, every teacher, if it doesn't work tomorrow, even though the books say it works, they're, pro- they're probably going to stop doing it, even though you know yes. your book is saying it and uh, Dylan Williams' book is saying it and I'm saying it. And they should not be doing it because they should. They, they are teaching in the classroom, right? Yes. They need to decide. Yeah. Okay. A couple of things on that, Christian. It's fascinating. This. So, just on the coherence bit, I find this really interesting. Um, I had to reissue. This is a bit of background. Here, I had to reissue um, my Danny Quinn interview just because when I changed podcast providers, it, it didn't copy across. So it's from about four years ago, and I, I re-listened to it uh, just whilst I was okay, copying it across. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of a maths department that planned, that joint planned things together in the sense that Danny is head of department and I think her second in department, they essentially planned all the lessons for all the departments and they have booklets. I know, I know Danny mm-hmm. recently spoke at maths conference about um, how to make booklets work well and so on. And this may link into textbooks that we'll talk about shortly. But that, that blew my mind four years ago because I'd always worked in schools where you had a scheme of work but teachers did what they wanted. If you wanted to teach one thing one way, you did it. If next door in the next classroom, it was being taught in a different way, well, it doesn't matter. Variety is good. But the more I think about this and, and having listened to you, it, it strikes me as not a good idea that, that a coherent approach across a department, perhaps planned by the more senior experienced members of staff, that then everyone can then talk about and reflect upon afterwards, what worked, what didn't, what we're going to change for next year, That feels to me like a pretty good bet that if you were going to choose between two things, what option one is you've got a scheme of work, but teachers do what they like versus option two, you've got a scheme of work and everyone does the same. I think I'd be leaning towards the latter. Would you agree with that, Christine? Yeah, I I immediately give a disclaimer that I'm, again, very (laughs) much uh, formed by my own teaching history. Um, I I do think that it's backed up by, you know, some of the studies that I do know. But yes, uh, I was actually quite surprised that everyone was so surprised by Danny's uh, contribution. (laughs) And I might have even tweeted something along those lines because I, I recall this. I listened to that podcast and I thought, I think I said something along the lines that this sounds all great, but it also sounds really familiar. And, yes. I, and, I, and I felt a bit guilty saying that because I thought, well, you know, you know, these people who constantly say, oh, I've done that already. And it sounds, <laughs> we're doing that already. Uh, it, can, it can be some sort of cop out again, right? Uh, by not yep. uh, acknowledging that um, it's actually a big deal. And I do believe that it's a big deal for England. But mm. this was exactly how I was used to uh, actually teaching from the first year. And I, and I must say that it's probably a, uh, an outlier when it comes to how it was organized in the school where I uh, taught for the 14 years, um, because it was immensely well planned. But there was a yes. tradition where, you know, you had one coordinator for the whole department. And then for every year, we would have one coordinator uh, who would um, um, make a planning? Of course, they would discuss, you know, what is wise, etc., and what is realistic, uh, and also probably would make the end of uh, chapter test most of the time. Um, so, so uh, and then indeed there were textbooks are used a lot in uh, in the Netherlands, but that meant that there was. I, I'm I I it, I think it's fair to say that 
apart from, of course, individual elements that will always remain the case, because many people think, well, I need to sort of let my individuality go uh, and teach, you know, um, exactly the same way as other people. But that will never go. That will always be there. But there is a common hymn sheet that uh, we all would sing from and some coordination and one person responsible for a year, let's say year seven, eight, for each of those years, there would be someone responsible for setting out a planning. Um, and, and I heard that from Danny uh, in, in the podcast and I thought, yeah, well, that sounds great. And that, that's exactly what, we, what I think most schools in the Netherlands would be doing. I was actually quite surprised that it then turned out not to be normal here in England um, um, and, and started to understand that much better. Also understand some of the frustration. I think I heard a lot about, for example, textbooks being of poor quality, uh, also hearing about workload and uh, etc. cetera, uh, and also how it links to, you know, whole classroom culture and, uh, and all kinds of other things. I, I get that. So, it's probably not as easy as that, but it was really, I think, indeed, this coherence and consistency, I think, really uh, is important. Not just, it, it makes, I would say, a teacher's life easier. And you also, by the way, you learn how to become this experienced teacher making resources much easier in the team where there is a culture of doing this. Because after one year, maybe in the first year, you don't do that, right? But then in the second year, uh, they ask you perhaps to do uh, year seven together with someone else who's a bit more experienced. And then you start creating resources, you make a planning, etc. And then uh, maybe the year after you do year seven one more time. So not just are you becoming a, a teacher in your own classroom, a better teacher, but also one that, you know, plans better across the department. Uh, and then at one point, you know, you get your own year in a sense or responsibility for a year, uh, year group. Uh, and you, you, you start to work in that particular fashion. And I think that really, um, yeah, there are benefits of scale, because you're all doing it. There are benefits singing from the same hymn sheet. I also think it's really important that on the whole, the same content is covered. You know, one thing for sure, it's going to be, it's not going to be, you know, the gift of the gab of the teacher, but it's going to be uh, sort of uh, not uniform because you have your own personality there as well. And I also did some extra tests because my group were particularly weak, perhaps at something, and then I would do something extra. That's my professionality and my craft knowledge, you know, coming in, in addition to all the other things that we've been doing. So I never really felt it as, um, uh, you know, restraining me in any way, but you do get the benefits from a coherent approach. Yeah, I agree. And I just think back to those first three or four years of my teaching career, and it seems mad now that I was expected to, to plan my own lessons almost with no guidance. And of course, I could ask for help and stuff, but I thought, no, I can figure this out myself. And some of those early lessons that I look back, they were terrible. But anyway, that's a bit beside the point. Um, before we move on to textbooks, Christian, I want to propose a good bet for you. Okay. And I want to see whether you'd agree whether this is a good bet. Now, you've mentioned cognitive load theory, and I couldn't have you on without discussing this um, a little bit. So, you mentioned before uh, that some people say reduced load and how that's not a good way to, to, to frame it. And I agree with that. And Paul Kirshner has been on the show and he's, he gets quite passionate about that because he says cognitive load theory isn't about reducing load. 
It's about reducing extraneous load so students can think more about the things that are going to contribute to learning, whether you call that intrinsic load or germane load or whatever. So I'm going to propose to you, Christian, that a good bet for a teacher would be to try to reduce extraneous load. Would you agree with me or disagree? Hmm. Yeah, I think I. Oh, that, that's a tough one. That's a tough <laughs> one. I knew it was going to be, always bite me. Uh, you know, at one point. Hmm. Um. I. Oh, yeah. You need to probably cut out all the silence now. Oh no, we keep it's the drama, very, Christian. We keep these in. I need to sound all resolute about this. I. 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 I, I don't know. No, I, I think it. It goes too far to really uh, call it a good bet. And let me tell you why. Okay, sure. I think, uh, and I know uh, that this is, um, how do you call it? Uh, not everyone agrees with that. I, th I, I just don't think that cognitive load theory really is about load. I, okay. I, at, one <laughs> at one at one point, I've I think I even jokingly said that uh, there are lots of great things in cognitive load theory, but you know the name of the theory isn't one of them. <laughs> and the and the reason is that I think that if we're talking about you know limited working memory, fair yeah. enough. That's Miller Cohen, uh, Cohen as well, uh, and uh, and this has been adopted as a as a as one of the principles in cognitive load theory. But it's something that we knew uh, already, and one and you know probably know this because I've I've I mentioned it quite a lot of times, not in the last year. I've mentioned more about the evolution, which I think you've taught the evolutionary principles when I think when you talk with Oli uh, about this, for example, and I thought that was a great podcast. There was lots of stuff was discussed that I, I feel passionate about and I'm also quite critical about when it comes to this. But I think uh, the problem really is that we just don't really know what load is. Uh, and of course, what happens if we don't really know what it is? It becomes everything, everything to everyone. It becomes attention. It, attention is often, you know, mentioned. Um, it becomes uh, all the effects that have to do with multimedia stuff, which of course, more higher probably cognitive uh, multimedia learning. Um, it becomes things like uh, indeed uh, effects like uh, modality effect. Um, um, and then we also hear about, you know, transient information effect, which is a so-called compound effect, according to the 2019, 20 years later article. But they don't really explain what a compound effect is. Just the only thing they say really is that it influences other effects. Uh, so that means, for example, that you, you know, all these people who say, I'm not going to read out these slides because of cognitive load theory tells me that I need to, etc. But the same theory also says transient information effect that, you know, if you s just say things and you only have a picture on the screen and you cannot go back to what is being said but you, because you can't, it has been said, then that can also cause load. And and the, I'm trying to symbolize or demonstrate that I think the the whole concept of load, and lots of people are going to tell me, well, that's because you just don't understand what it really means. Cognitive load is just quite a nebulous uh, um, uh, term in that sense. Is it attention? How do they play into each other? I'm going to mention measurement, which really is a big issue. I find it 
honestly unbelievable that in 1992 you uh, one scale is being you know chosen uh, I, and before that actually i i would say the cognitive load theory uh, literature is better before 1992 because after 1992 most of it uses this one nine point likert scale um about mental effort and then again you have another thing what mental effort or is it load or what is it what are we talking about and what i'm a little bit afraid of when it becomes a good bet called uh reduce extraneous load that we read everything and anything in what load is and everyone will just start uh you know reducing something uh (laughs) But we don't really know, and I think the theory is also clear, uh, unclear with regard to that, what it actually is, how it is measured, what it... And even when we look, and this is the last thing I will say, because otherwise I sound all fanatic, you know, and, and I'm debunking cognitive load theory, but I'm not. I'm just being a bit critical about certain aspects, is that lately there also has been uh, some talk about... Um, Oh, what's it called? I I need to know this. Uh, uh, depletion, working memory depletion. Oh yes. Uh, which which almost seems to suggest, and again, um, uh, it's quite new. So it's and I think you had a, a great uh, podcast with uh, Uhau uh, Chen yes. about this, um, and he does some great work, great articles, etc. Really interesting uh, area as well. Uh, but what is, I would say, a risk is that um, basically if we can deplete, uh, you know, almost uh, the working memory capacity so that it basically becomes flexible, then what is left of the statement, oh, we have a limited capacity, if it mm. is influenced by almost everything, prior knowledge, the difficulty level, complexity of the task, uh, the schemas that are already in your head, uh, whether you are prone to uh, working memory depletion or not. Mm. Uh, there is such a raft of uh, things that influences all of this that going back to this contextual aspect that I think it's going to be really difficult to 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 sort of definitively say something about that. I do acknowledge that there are lots of teachers, and you are, I think, one of them, who say, well, it has helped me. So I'm certainly not going to say, right, well, that can't be, because, yes, yeah. because you are saying it. You, why why would, wouldn't I believe you? They, they have been helped, whether it's the heuristic or something else. Uh, mm. uh, excellent. Great. If, if, it, if it has improved your practice, then great stuff. Uh, you're not going to hear me. But I do think from a personally, from a scientific point of view, that there are lots of questions that, uh, let's say, make me a bit uneasy to to make a firm statement there. Wow, that was yeah, a long a, answer, right? It's what? a good answer. No, it's a, it's a very interesting answer, Christian. But a long I'll just, one. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. Um, I'll just say one thing in reply before we move on to textbooks, and feel free to, to, to respond to this or, or, or move on. Um, I've I've mentioned this in a couple of podcasts, particularly when, again, if we mention Helen Williams again, when when we and Helen were talking about cognitive load theory, and I know she's she's very critical for very good reasons of it. And my takeaway at the end, I was trying to explain why I find it useful. 
And I find the concept of extraneous load really useful for, for me personally, because it stops me doing things that I used to do, which I now believe are wrong. So things that are really obvious. So if we take split attention effect as a really basic example, if I look at some of the way I used to do working out on the board, where I wouldn't carefully integrate labels with diagrams, I, I now am much more careful to put step numbers in there and make it very clear what, what this text relates to on the diagram or things like redundancy effects. So in terms of reading out slides, like I, I won't speak whilst my students are trying to read something because I don't want those two conflicting audio streams being, being processed. Little things like this that a lot of teachers say, well, that's just obvious. That's just what good teachers know not to do that anyway. But I didn't know that. I, I taught for 12, 13 years without knowing that. And now I label all that as extraneous load because I find it a really useful concept for me to think about. And I, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I have a list of about five or six things that when I'm planning a lesson, I try to avoid. I try to avoid split attention. I try to avoid redundancy. I try to avoid transient information. All these things is almost like a checklist for me when I look at a slide or a worksheet. Now, that might be me misinterpreting cognitive load theory, or it might be me pulling in different theories, like you mentioned cognitive theory of multimedia learning or, or um, dual coding theory. It might be me kind of integrating a few things together. But for me, it's become a really useful checklist of things to avoid doing to give my students the best chance of focusing on the big ideas of the lesson, if, if that makes sense. So that's how I use it. Uh, I, I don't know if, if again, if, feel free to respond, Christian, or, or we can move on, whatever feels best. Well, I, 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 uh, I, I would add one more variable, to be honest, because I, that sounds very sensible, to be honest, to me. And lots of these principles, I would, I would probably pr perhaps group them under, you know, good design or whatever. Yes, yes. Uh, or or d design of resources or mm. the materials. And I, you know, we all love the stuff that Oliver Caligoli, yes. I always forget how to pronounce his name, but, you know, so, so uh, and Paivio, which I think he's quotes yes. quite a lot. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's a lot of sensible stuff there. But what is interesting, um, in this, so I wouldn't necessarily call it cognitive load theory, but I do understand that some do group it under that. But that you are mainly, if I'm not mistaken, talking about cognitive load theory uh, anno 1998 and to let's say 2008, uh, and, and mentioning lots of effects from then, the earlier days of cognitive load theory. And I, I did listen, of course, as I said, to uh, some of the podcasts that you talked about cognitive load theory. And maybe you've picked up that I'm together with Kasper Hulsof, a colleague from the Netherlands. We're trying to write a paper with some critical points, but constructive, I would say, as well. Uh, and I think uh, that there have been a lot of additions uh, and changes to cognitive load theory that I'm personally not completely convinced about. One of them is the evolutionary principles. You mentioned germane load. Germane load for uh, has been taken out for uh, uh, some reasons that that you know are a bit too niche, maybe too detailed here. But uh, that it's not an independent load type, but it's still being used. And then we've got you know working memory depletion, etc. Cognitive load theory. So so one of my questions always would be: What version of cognitive load theory are you talking about? 
Uh, and uh, and even now, until I think even a couple of weeks ago, there was someone who, um, especially in the German school of cognitive load theory, they're still really quite uh, believers in germane load. So they created a questionnaire, an instrument that measures extraneous intrinsic and germane load. Then someone came in and said, oh, yeah, but Sweller has... Uh, not a germane load is uh, is not really an independent load type, etc. And this, I think, symbolizes what makes me a bit uneasy. There really are quite a lot of differences and things that are, you know, changing constantly. And some people will say, well, that's just part of a, an evolving theory. But it also causes problems. And I think that that these are could be highlighted a little bit more. Um, so it sounds to me, for example, that the things that you're saying is the cognitive load theory of 1998 to, let's say, 2008. And that doesn't mean that it's now outside of the box, because in the overview article, they are still mentioned. But since 2008, there also have been more additions like, you know, self-management. You must have read about that as well. Self-management effect. Uh, there is the, the evolutionary principles have been added. Um, as a foundation, so many people say, "Oh no, but it's just a, a bit of speculation, etc." But it's not. If you read the articles, there literally is said the foundation of cognitive load theory. You know, I, I find it already strange that you find the, your foundations thirty years or twenty years after you started the theory, right? And I just, I'm just fascinated by this. So. People then say, oh, you just hate cognitive load theory. Well, would I really spend hundreds of hours reading these papers if I, re uh, if I hate something? I've got better things to do. I think there are lots of interesting things and important things in there, but there also are inconsistencies and things that, you know, contradictory elements. And surely, you know, uh, thinking about measurement, 1992, this scale, and it's still being used without really... Uh, having been studied enough in the in the last 2019 article, it is still being said. Oh, we still have to find out lots of stuff about uh, how to measure cognitive load. Come on, you cannot say that you are, a, in my view, be a serious discipline. And 20 years after something, or even it was 28 years, 1992. 28 years after, you're still saying, ah, well, but we still need to know if it, you know, if it really works. That I just, I, nah, anyway. So, so I, I must admit that this might be some kind of strange element uh, uh, that the researcher in me is conjuring up all the time, mm. but it does, you know, annoy me. Uh, and, and I think it's important to discuss these things. And this is why I love all these podcasts that are about cognitive load theory, because to be honest, there aren't that many people who find it interesting to, to discuss in depth cognitive load theory. Finally, people talking about element yes. interactivity. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, it was already in 1994, the first article. So, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, yeah. So, so I, I, I hope I send out the message that I, I respect all the stuff that is going on, but I do think that there are some major challenges uh, ahead for, um, for cognitive load theory. Um, and I think that also links to what we started with, basically, about, you know, models and how, how precise do we need to be? Because I do understand, again, if you say it works, then great. If it improves 
teaching of mathematics, then, you know, who am I to complain? I think that's great. Uh, but from a researcher perspective, I think there's still uh, questions to be answered. And it will always be the case, to be honest. So in that case, I hope this was a bit of a ramble. Sorry. No, it's good. <laughs> <We love> it. <laughs> that's what this podcast is for. That's fantastic, Christian. Right. Well, let's move on to the third and final topic uh, that we're going to discuss, and that's textbooks. Um, now, you've already hinted at this already, um, some thoughts that you've had. And we know that in England, though there isn't a, a history of having a, a kind of national textbook or regional textbooks or anything like that. And every school I visit, it's really interesting. There was a, there was a period of time about oh, maybe 10 years ago, maybe even a little bit longer, where if you were taught, if you were caught teaching with a textbook, it was the worst thing in the world you could be doing. And Ofsted would tear you apart. And as a result... Schools were hiding these textbooks in the cupboards and often you'll open a maths department store cupboard and you'll find some dusty old textbooks. But I get a feeling textbooks are having a bit of a resurgence in this country and yet still there's no culture of, of teaching from the textbook, certainly not that I, I'm aware of anyway. So, so what's, what's your experience and thoughts on this, Christian? Well, so... Again, I'm going to contextualize it from the way I was brought up as a mathematics teacher. Um, basically, 99% of uh, Dutch mathematics classrooms have a textbook. I, I, I've, I haven't encountered any schools. I think there was a school that used a digital textbook at one point, right? And that was quite innovative. But basically... All, all of the classrooms in the Netherlands have a mathematics textbook, secondary school I'm talking about. Um, it also was a little bit, um, I would say, not a healthy market because it was basically for mathematics. There was one publisher who basically did two textbooks and they had 90% of the market. So it wasn't really a, a very healthy market, but at least it provided consistency, right? And it was interesting that this publisher published two types of textbooks, one which was a bit more procedural, but still enough conceptual stuff in there, and one that was a bit more conceptual. But and with so so they clearly had looked at um, you know uh, the prevalence of teachers, with some teachers maybe being a bit more skills and and practice oriented, and then also sneaking in the well, not sneaking in, but getting the understanding there. And the other ones as well, uh, uh, vice versa, the, in, the, uh, in the sense that they would be a bit more conceptual and then add a bit more basic skills. And I thought that was a, quite a smart business model because you would cover all the teachers, right? And, it, and the idea was that every department basically would decide what te textbook to use. And most schools uh, would then have some sort of school fund or a book fund where basically uh, students would get textbooks on loan for a year um, uh, for a f sort of parental fee, which here here you also often get as a parent, I get requests, oh, uh, do you have £10 for this or £20 for this? But it would basically be one fee. And for all subjects, you know, you would get the uh, textbook that the department would, ha would have chosen, whether it was maths or history, etc. You just get a, a large stack of books and there always was a ritual at the beginning of the year where students then would um, cover their books with a piece of paper so it wouldn't get um, get um, uh, damaged. Uh, and if you did damage it, you had to pay a, a fee at the end of the year. 
And that worked quite nicely. I think uh, every department at least had to keep one book for three years because otherwise it would not be financially viable. But three years, you would hope that departments would not be so, you know, Uh, fickle that they would change their book every one or two years that they would have some consistency there and I was I I think of course I was brought up this way at one point even the government decided that they would pay for the book so their parents didn't have to pay anything you would just get this stack of books and it was really I thought it was great for several reasons one was this consistency Uh, two was uh, consistency across the department I would say with every teacher still having their own, you know, individuality, uh, which I I know many or some teachers might not believe, but it really was the case. It wasn't really a uniformity. It was just using a common, uh, you know, hymn sheet. That's why I like it. You know, every singer has their own timbre and their own voice, etc. But they together, you're singing your piece, etc. It's a foundation and you build on that. But another thing that I think is so underestimated uh, is that they could take these books home. Uh, So every student had their own stack of books for all these subjects. And you would bring them home and not this crumpled up worksheet in the bottom of my rucksack of my children, (laughs) right? Or what are are they teaching you now? Well, I don't know. I I forgot my worksheet. It's gone. (laughs) But you always would know, uh, at least as a parent, you would know a, a bit what they were doing. And I realized that, you know, it might not always be easy for t- uh, parents to support their children mm-hmm. but just the fact that you had something to rely on as a student but also as a parent I really thought that was quite important um, so, so that that's another thing uh, and when I came here I was just shocked that uh, the the use of textbooks was so low so it was one of the first things together with my former colleague, he retired now, Keith Jones. I did um, uh, I, I did a paper for a textbook conference. So we in Southampton, we organized a textbook conference. We had a colleague from uh, China, uh, Professor Liang Kuo Fan, who also was in, uh, I think, in one of the workload um, working groups from the DFE. Um, and uh, in China, they also use a lot of textbooks just this sort of commonality is just mm, mm. uh and then in england you know if you looked at ofsted reports indeed or you looked simply at the practices it, it was clear that it was one of the countries with the, the the smallest use of textbooks which i thought was quite surprising yeah and and as i as i say it's not just that it, it again i don't know if Ofsted ever explicitly said this but it was certainly the message that if you were teaching from a textbook it was seen as a bad thing it was it was perhaps a lack of imagination lazy teachers and so on and i know like the i i maybe went through five or six Ofsted inspections in those early years as a teacher and i never never even dreamed of getting a textbook out for those because that's the time you get the card sorts out or the mysteries and so on and so forth because teaching from a textbook was was lazy teaching um mm-hmm. so w- what do you think christian like i know I remember a while ago you were doing some work with the um, SMP uh, kind of classic textbooks and kind of trying to digitize those and, and bring those back and so on. Do you think there will be a resurgence of a, of a kind of textbook culture within the England? Do you see this happening already? Hmm. I think it has improved somewhat, but it does 
to me, and again, this is a little bit, I would say, anecdotal, uh, more, you know, my spidey senses or something like that. It feels, <laughs> it, it doesn't feel that it's, it does feel as if I do still encounter quite a lot of reactions that, you know, you need to be a bit more original and creative than just follow a book, which I find really um, strange because of the reasons I just mentioned, I don't yeah. see them as mutually exclusive. Yeah, you know, yeah. I would yeah. the chapter on Pythagoras would come along, and then I thought, well, this these three lines on the history of Pythagoras are not enough. I'm going yes. to expand a little bit more, and I'm going to talk about you know how the Pythagoreans and their history, etc., and even get, tell some you know myths, uh, but very cool myths about you yes. know uh, it being a, a cult of Pythagoras, etc. Uh, that sort of stuff, you would just expand on this. Or when I thought, well, they need a bit more practice. I remember, I think, in the when I was teaching differentiation, I I'd al I always still think that uh, beginning from first principles with differentiation is the better way than actually doing lots of practice first um, because it is quite insightful to reduce the interval to zero Yes. Uh, if you start with x to x plus h, and then you let uh, uh, you reduce h to zero, and you use let's basically uh, you know the slope uh, fx plus h minus fx over x plus h minus x. I need to do this correctly, of course. <laughs> That's good, yeah. <laughs> um, um, and and you and you start with x squared, for example, as a, f a function, or um, and then you fill in everything, and then you uh, you even use limits, the limit from h to zero, yeah. and you can see that the that then, uh, you know, things cancel each other out and you're left with 2x after h has gone to, to 0. And you do that one more time with uh, maybe x to the uh, third power. And I think I at one point I did it with 1 over x. And then I even use something very simple, like maybe uh, fx equals x. So something that you would never use, right? Uh, and But you still get 1. And yeah. then you wonder aloud, oh, wow, this is great, but this is a lot of work. You know, we don't want to have a lot of work. Let's try to generalize this, etc., etc. I think that this at least instilled some sort of sense of where it all came from, right? What the origins were of, of uh, but then we say, uh, at one point to say, well, this we're a bit lazy, like all mathematicians, right? And we're going to find a shortcut. And then you go back to this generalization of ax to the b power. Uh, the, the derivative is b times a to the xb minus 1 or something like that. Um, so I... I would expand on that. Uh, so the basis would be my textbook, and we would make sure that all classrooms and all teachers would be uh, basing their teaching on that. So there is this continuum, there is this consistency. We know the next year also, that which also is another important advantage, I would say, of textbooks, yes. that you know what the teachers and you don't uh, what the uh, students have been taught one year yes. before. Etc. Etc. So many advantages to that, uh, and I never really felt compromised in my individuality at all. I appreciate that here it seems as if some people do think compromised in their individuality, but I would say you don't have to feel that way. You just need to uh, keep on doing what you normally would be doing, but you just use this common hymn sheet to. You know, to to teach some of it, I, I don't. I never really understood the big issue with it. 
Well, a, a couple of points here, uh, Christian. So the, the first is, um, I was like you, when I was at school, certainly at A-level, I definitely had a textbook that I took home with me all the time. And I think A-level now, you still see textbooks. If you're going to see textbooks anywhere in a school, students, it's going to be A-level. Students are going to have their own. Perhaps schools are going to lease it to them, as you say. And then as long as they hand it back at the end of the year undamaged, then there's, there's no cost and so on. So I certainly see it at A-level, but... Less so at Key Stage 3 and 4, uh, but perhaps more than I would have done 10 years ago. But I wonder, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, it only occurred to me when you were speaking then, that it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. What do you think came first in England? Was it that a lack of textbooks or poor quality textbooks has led to this growth in free resources from teachers like Joe Morgan, Don Stewart, Malcolm Swan, all the great kind of resource curators and writers. Do you think, because I, I think England's quite unique in that sense for, for, for mathematics, from my limited experience, you'll know more than me, but as a, as, a, as a UK maths teacher, the amount of resources I can access, largely for free as well, by just going on the internet, whether it's TES or whoever it may be, I almost don't need a textbook because I can find quality. Now, we've got search costs, how long it takes me to find them. Then I've got to judge whether they're good. I lose the coherence, but I can certainly find things. So mm. I wonder, did that come as a result of the, the lack of textbooks and poor quality textbooks? Or was it the other way around? Do you think because England, for some reason, has all this quality stuff available for free, there's almost no pressure on textbook creators to make their textbooks good because not many people are using them. There isn't that demand. There isn't the market there. I, I don't know. Is, is any of that make sense? Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. It's um, and again, it's. I should write a paper at one point or do some more, <laughs> more, uh, more intense research on this. But uh, so this is a little bit based on. Know, my, my thoughts and uh, reading into stuff and also looking at the history, for example, of the S&P stuff. Yes. Um, um, because we now have the archive at Southampton and I'm, indeed I'm also, I, I'm waiting for one particular thing and then I hope to sort of uh, uh, make the next step uh, with uh, those materials. So, so I, I do think that if there are lots of resources, like you're saying, that uh, that does help because you can sort of bricolage or compose your own your own curriculum. But I do think that there is a reason why, you know, things like uh, White Rose Maths and Maths Mastery materials are um, becoming quite popular in certain circles. I think it is this, this uh, desire to have a bit of consistency. I think the most experienced teachers, to be honest, probably are are quite capable of uh, sort of composing everything they've got lots in their head as well right they are they are professionals they are expert they know this by heart etc cetera, etc cetera. um and that's a lot of craft knowledge there you know that you've built up over decades some people uh and it's it's quite difficult to um, to adopt that sort of stuff. I think this sort of composing uh, probably takes more time than if you have one consistent, coherent book, for example, which would be good. I'm afraid to say that I think that one of the main reasons are is the exam board change from decades back. Uh, so I looked at the history of school mathematics projects, for example, and I was actually shocked to hear that I think about 80 or 90% of the 
schools were using SP materials, apparently. Again, you can perhaps better confirm this because I wasn't here, right? I'm just reading all the books and all the stuff. Um, and it's interesting that, for example, I think uh, Joe Bowler's research, you know, had two very distinct schools. I forgot the railroad. That was the American one. But I think in the in the English version, they uh, they they had two distinct schools and one was uh, more traditional, if I'm not mistaken, and one was a bit more innovative. But I think both were actually using S&P materials. And that sort of was quite symbolic for the fact that the S&P was just such a large, had such a large uh, reach. The moment that S&P, so, so there was a time, this is why I'm mentioning, there was a time when actually there was quite a lot of coordination in schools, apparently. For, you know, whether you like it or not, I've had lots of people say, well, I didn't like it because I was left to my own devices uh, and I didn't get any instruction. And others be in other schools, they would use SP materials as a basis for their instruction. So, so they are sort of detached a little bit from you know the teaching approach. So, for better or worse, most schools were using this, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and then at one point, I uh, my reading of it is that it all went haywire because the exam boards were reorganized. And one thing that SP couldn't promise was a connection to a certain exam board. And thinking about the way that now uh, this, in my view, still uniquely strange situation where you have a country with multiple exam boards, uh, there are not uh, that many around, if I think, or at least, um, and I, I'm not, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not for multiple exam boards. I think it's a strange situation, but hey ho, it's how it is. Um, that also meant that um, textbooks were very much linked to the providers of the exam boards, and they and we also know that the exam boards also have you know publishing interests. We know Cambridge Assessment, we know Pearson, etc. And there are probably some some others as well. Maybe what is it three? I think for maths or four. I, I don't know, but anyway, I think. To me, this linking of exam boards and, and textbooks, etc. Textbooks, I think, also became a bit more study guide-like rather than really textbooks because, you know, when I heard Danny talk about the booklets that they are using where you have, you know, a, a, a nicely sequenced set of uh, information, um, uh, instructional sections, and you've uh, you've got some practice and you've got some differentiation, you know, stretch tasks for others, etc., etc. That is what I mean with a good textbook. And I think study guides are a completely different uh, beast and not necessarily bad because I think for key stage four, you know, I can understand working towards an exam that that's, but that's a different type of textbook that you need, for example, with key stage three, when you're building up all the skills, when you're building up all the concepts, and I think that is where perhaps um, less has, um, you know, that there has been less development. But, although I do know good textbooks from the, the, the mainstream publishers as well, they're quite reasonable. But I do think this, this link with exam boards and this whole reform of the exam boards seems to have had quite a big impact. I certainly know that the School Mathematics Project S&P Materials they had S&P Interactive, I think, pub published in 2002 or 2003, and they never really went, came to the same level as they used to be for all kinds of reasons. 
Um, and yeah, I think that's a shame because I think, you know, whether it's S&P or some other high quality textbook, uh, because you like that a bit more, I really fervently believe that this coherence of curriculum, but also instructional materials, practice, etc., uh, as a basis, the department, the, the fact that you could bring them home as a student, parental support, you know, I think it's a no-brainer, to be honest. I think, in, and, and even if you are the most extreme, extremely uniquely independent teacher who thinks, well, I don't, I, I, I don't really want to, to use this, then you use it in a, in a more limited way, right? It's not as if one thing excludes the other. It is still possible to to teach in your own unique way. I had a colleague who was honestly <laughs> the most unique <laughs> mathematics teacher that I, I've ever seen. And, but he was still working from these, these textbooks, the same textbook I was working from. And it was, I think, quite good that when I got you know, his class one year later, that we could still rely yes. on, on some sort of re- thread running through all of it. I just don't understand why you would want anything else, really. But this is, again, my bias speaking. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, I can only speak from my limited experience, but I think you're absolutely right. If you're going to buy a textbook, you're going to buy a Key Stage 4 exam board-focused textbook because you want to give your kids the best chance. So as a department, you're going to buy a set of textbooks designed to help with the NXL GCSE or the AQA GCSE, whatever it is. And of course, these days with it, with maths department budgets being limited, that's probably your budget for the year gone once you've purchased that set of, particularly if you've subscribed to Hegarty Maths or My Maths as well, you certainly, but in terms of priority lists, I mean, Key Stage 3 generally, I think is underserved. And, and I've spoke with Joe Morgan about this, how Key Stage 3 mathematics is often the forgotten kind of key stage. And, and often it's when non-specialists get put and split classes and so on. But in terms of expenditure and departmental priorities, key stage three textbooks are really low down. And again, I agree with you. If you're following mathematics mastery, maybe you've got a set of textbooks or you've got the online resources, same with White Rose. But yeah, I've, I I don't see many key stage three textbooks around. Uh, the final question I'm just going to ask you on this, uh, Christian, is just booklets. You've touched upon this. So Again, I've heard Danny speak about booklets. I've seen a few schools that create their own booklets. It just seems to me so inefficient. For Just like it seems strange to me that schools every year seem to be rewriting their own schemes of work and spending weeks in summer doing that every year. Surely schools, individual departments writing their own booklets, that just seems crazy, doesn't it? There's got to be a way of... I mean, is, is that needed? Is that just that there's a lack of good textbooks or, or, or is it a desire for individualism? It just seems crazy to me. Yeah, well, I agree that it's crazy. I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily know the solution, to be honest, because I do think... Uh, so, so one of the things that uh, I, I would love to do uh, because I do think that you can sort of join forces that will, of course, you know, you need to step over your own shadow, really, to a certain extent, because, you know, uh, if if you've got some kind of school who makes resources and they use it in a certain way, then both the school who is providing the stuff should just leave to the professionals, you know, in the other school how they're going to use it and not prescribe too much, 
because if they do, I think it's not going to work, right? Uh, because it's... Uh, um, but you also should be open as, let's say, the receiving party to to say that, all right, so this is, this is the content that we're going to serve, right? Perhaps we're going to do it in a slightly different way, et cetera. That's all part of the choices the maths department makes. So it's sort of give and take in that sense. And I, I do... St- have a feeling that this give and take is still quite a big challenge for for schools or sets of schools. That's probably also why maybe uh, trusts, for example, with multiple schools, you know, they can just say, well, we're all going to use the same thing. And I think some of the schemes of work that have been created, like White Rose and um, uh, Math Mastery, which I think stems from ARC, I think, you know, it, it, it is one of the reasons why why they've become popular uh but the the drawback is that they might not be adopted easily outside then of that particular circle so um and it can also become rather expensive you mentioned it with key stage 3 so i what the reason why i wanted to mention the dutch context with um uh, the the um, parents paying for you know the lease of those books also means that there is a completely different textbook business model, you could say, or a a finance model here. Uh, And it can even be done without the government uh, intervening and paying anything, right? Uh, uh, At one point, the government said, we're going to pay for all of it. But before that, it would just be, uh, you know, uh, let's say 150 euros a year for all the subjects that the uh, student got. Uh, and then there was some kind of social fund that if you didn't have enough money that uh, you would still get them, of course, but you had to ask for it, etc. And there was some kind of committee and it all, all worked out just fine. Um, so uh, I think. And now it does seem that it's become quite commercialized as well, uh, because I do know that. So, so my ambition would be my ambition and maybe others as well, is that at one point you have a really low-cost, high-quality textbook simply available. I don't believe in those free projects. We had a, There was a project in the Netherlands where everything was sort of open-sourced at one point, and there was one, there was one book that was open-sourced, but then there really is an issue when it comes to maintenance, etc. So I do get the 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 comments that some may well, you know, uh, uh, only the sun shines, you know, for free, uh, and and not even that. So you need to you need to have some kind of way to actually um, support all of this. Uh, but I think you can get quite far if you sort of uh, come together as teachers and you, I think that's actually how the SMP project started in the 60s, where basically teachers and people from the maths department in Southampton and people from the education department the, and, and teachers in the area came together and they started making stuff. And, you know, at, at one point it became a whole series of books uh, 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 with the first series in the 60s, and then they innovated it in the second series, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think that sort of stuff should really be be possible, but it just needs the right time and the right incentives, the right... And that is, to be honest, one of the things I hope to do in the not-too-distant future, to see if, if we can uh, look at uh, some of the existing materials because some of it is still really quite current and relevant, especially the S&P interactive stuff, to see, you know, if, if 
we can help each other out, basically, as a large mathematics education community, researchers, designers. It's a bit ambitious, perhaps, but, you know, we. I think we, there is something to be won there, which is now um, we're missing out from, and everyone is reinventing the wheel uh, all the time, which is just a really a shame, because... The, the drawback of that also is that if you've got a few leading figures, at one point they will have to, uh, you know, um, s- teach it to the next generation. <laughs> you know, we're not going to uh, – maybe they change jobs or other reasons or you, you know, start a family or I don't know. At one point you will have less time. It, yes. It's just the way it, it is. And you can even last 20, 30 years, but at one point there needs to be some kind of transition, yes. uh, especially because if you keep it all to yourself, then which is what I would want to do, to be honest, as well, because then it's done best, right? But it's not the best model for the future, yeah. really. Yeah. We need a real community uh, that tries to build on this. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Fascinating, Christian. Well, if it's all right with you, we might move to your reflections now, if that's okay. So just got um, just three things I'd like to ask you, if that's all right. And, and feel free to be as brief or as long as you want, whatever you fancy. Uh, first question, what's an example of something important that you've changed your mind about? So that's it's not mathematics education related, but that's uh, the observation that Dutch directness, everyone loves Dutch directness, and I think, <laughs> do we? Well, I, it isn't always good. <laughs> so, um, I, and this is sort of a tangent, to be honest, because as I say, it's not mathematics education related. But I think over the years, now living in England, but also having met many people from Latin American countries, Asia, etc., I was really, really convinced that, you know, all this beating around the bush in meetings in England, but maybe even more in other countries, wasn't a good thing. We need some, you know, good old-fashioned German or Dutch efficiency, (laughs) and we need to get to the point as quickly as possible. And I was really convinced that um, that was better than uh, beating around the bush. Uh, And that... mainly because, you know, lots of meetings are simply not very efficient. But I've come to realize that actually it serves a very important social function, <laughs> this beating around the bush. Uh, it has to do, I, I would say, with uh, egos or, or uh, emotions, uh, etc. And there's a really important function to be had, which I hadn't really realized uh, being a Dutch blunt person. Um yeah, that, that was the first thing that came to mind immediately. That's really, that's really interesting. I like that one, Christian. That's good. We ne- never have had, God, 150 episodes now. Never had an answer quite like that. That's nice. I like that one. I like that. Um, now, the answer to this second one, it can be the same answer if you want, or it can be something different. Is there anything you wish you'd known when you first started out in research or in education in general that you know now? So my background originally was mathematics and computer science, so really a quite uh, hardcore beta <laughs> topics, right? Natural sciences or mathematics proofs, etc. Then when I became, uh, of course, teacher and then started to do research, I became a social scientist. So that's, let's say, soft knowledge in that sense. Um, and I wish I had earlier on 
read more about philosophy of science because I do think that a lot also on social media, a lot of all the discussions are underpinned by you know, paradigms, worldviews, the way we look at the world, the, the way we see science, the way we see progress, uh, the way we study science. So, you know, lots of people would say, oh, all these big words, uh, uh, epistemology, ontology. But I do think that if we really want to understand each other better in, in social science and also teachers, let's say a mathematician who has become a teacher and a social scientist, we need to better understand these underpinnings these, uh, and also acknowledge and I've written down uh, David Berliner, who is uh, quite a well-known education researcher. And he's at one point, he, he wrote in, uh, in, in one of the journals a commentary. And he said, uh, and the title of this commentary was Education Research, the Hardest Science of Them All, uh, where he uh, actually uh, very interestingly uh, talked about, you know, the juxtaposition with natural sciences and how we wanted to, um, and also basically said, because of all the degrees of freedom, you know, the context, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of things are not as fixed as in natural sciences, where it's something that you can study in a Petri dish, for example, you know, it's humans are just fickle and, and groups of humans are even more fickle and mm-hmm. a younger and uh, uh, children and adults together, even more difficult. Mm-hmm. So, I I think I did appreciate that it was quite challenging, but the more and more I'm doing social science research, the more and more I realize I don't know so much. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, that should also be a sign above my door, like uh, <laughs> Aristotle, I think, or Socrates. I know that I know nothing. I think that has really um, is, a, is an important insight. And I... I think, at least for me. And I also think that it's very much influenced by my trajectory, how I went from, uh, you know, maths and science to social science teacher, etc. So my whole voyage. And I think it is important to know a bit more about these underpinnings. Um, I think that, yeah, uh, things like causation, you know, when people say, oh, correlation isn't causation. Uh, you hear that on Twitter all the time, where people say, uh, explain uh, things. Uh, oh, you're misunderstanding it. These are not discussions that are new. You know, this has been debated for hundreds of years. So a bit of the history of philosophers like David Hume um, and uh, Kant and causation, uh, and they debated and they rowed and they wrote letters for years and years and years. And here we are sometimes also reinventing the wheel of all these debates. And I think I, I find them a lot of fun and I participate in many of them. But they would be, in my opinion, they would be so much better if we all knew a little bit more about the, the history and the, the philosophy of science. Fantastic. And final question from me, Christian. Uh, is there any areas of educational research that you think are overlooked and that, that deserve a bit more attention? Yeah, so um, I think it's sort of related a little bit to this. I, if I, When I read journals on mathematics education, I sometimes find them a little bit one-sided. 
so maybe they focus a little bit more on more qualitative type studies and other outlets are a bit more um more quantitatively oriented maybe they have a randomized controlled trial you know there is a reason why all these math studies in 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 psychology journals are so popular uh, uh i think and for some good reasons but i also think that you know some of the qualitative studies also uh, can give lots of insight so w- what i'm missing a little bit is the communication between those two fields this is why i you know i i mentioned loughborough before uh, and I would say that perhaps in our department, in our uh, research center, we try to also marry these, you know, different approaches. This multidisciplinarity, I think, is so important because we we need to. I don't think there is a, one holy grail of research or methodology approach that you can use, mm-hmm. and then you're done. You know, it's actually better to look at things from different perspectives in different ways qualitative, quantitative, different paradigms, different ways of looking at the same thing. Uh, and I, th- I don't think mathematics education research is unique in this. I think it is an issue or a challenge in most fields, probably. I would love if there was a bit more of the sort of bridging of these, these two extremes. Um, so that links again to philosophy of science uh, as well. Um, and and have you know mature conversations about these things rather than uh, othering and dismissal. Uh, oh, this is not a randomized controlled trial. So, but also not. Oh, this is measurement study, quant- quantitative study. Of course, they can't say anything about what the students are feeling. We need an interview study. You know, both are a bit right and both are a bit wrong. And if they talk together, if they talk to each other, uh, then I think actually we can we can get places and we can maybe, you know, uh, yeah, no, get, get further. Fantastic. Superb. Well, Christian, we've uh, essentially reached the end. Just one more thing to do, and that's your big three. So I wonder if there are three websites, blog posts, books, whatever you want that you recommend our listeners will check out. And I'll put links to these in the show notes page. So what are you going to go for, Christian? All right. So um, just because in the last week, I think I've retweeted about three or four or five of his articles. And I also uh, heard other people uh, say, I just enjoy his his, his timeline. Uh, Ethan Mollick. Uh, I'll, I'll write down the name, but he he's, he always has very interesting studies. Uh, um, and I uh, they're a bit out there. It's not necessarily mathematics education, but it's just very cool. And I, I know a couple, I think, has, have also emphasized how much they are enjoying his timeline. So that, that certainly was one. Uh, based on on my last month because you know they could change tomorrow these three top uh, big three i'm all over the place you know that's how i start ethan ethan mollick ethan mollick m-o yeah m-o-l-l-i-c-k then uh another thing that i'm quite heavily involved in and i think is important is um research transparency uh, so as a great uh, podcast about scientists, it's described on their website as a podcast by scientists for scientists, but I think it's interesting for everyone. Uh, and they say meth- that it, the podcast is about methodology, scientific life, and bad language, which I quite, 
find quite funny. Uh, and that's the Everybody Hurts podcast. Uh, so Hurts uh, spelled as H-E-R-T-Z. So uh, not, not the Hurts, so nicely done. And that's one that I, I listen to quite a lot because I would say it's generally about how we can improve science, you know, and what can be bad. Uh, science in a broad perspective, I must say, uh, because I'm not, um, I hope I've already sent out the message that I'm quite, you know, an omnivore when it comes to research. I find most of it interesting and all kinds of different perspectives. So that's that's one um, and then, you know, I'm going to, I wondered whether that perhaps that was a little bit too pedantic, but because some people on the social media would call me pedantic anyway, I thought, what the heck? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say it anyway. What two of the uh, best research resources I uh, look at quite a lot are the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Um and I think there's also a Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And it's just, I would recommend everyone, also teachers, to uh, just to get this understanding of these different ways of looking at things. You know, just read up on, on, on Karl Popper, for example, or just read up on, uh, on um, you know, the big questions that science, the Enlightenment, etc., etc. I think that could be really... Um, informative at least i i get a lot of enjoyment out of it i'm not sure everyone but you know it's my big three it's not their big three. <laughs> that's a great selection christian and as ever there'll be links to those in the show notes page oh uh, well we've come to the end and this has been a long time in the making i've wanted to have you on the show for a good few years now i think we've only really met in person maybe once or twice at most but i've been a, a long time admirer of, of your work particularly on social media i think you have you have a patience, a rare patience. Uh, you very rarely kind of lose it on social media. and That can't be said about uh, everybody. And also you you often, I think you're very good at taking the contrarian line, but not in like an awkward way, not in, I'm just going to argue the opposite just for the sake of it, but just pointing out, you know, potential issues with, with widely held so-called truths. So keep doing what you're doing, Christian, because I, I certainly enjoy it. And I know lots of teachers find it incredibly useful to, to follow your work. And hopefully you'll be back on the show sometime in the future when you finish some of these papers that you keep talking about as well. So Christian, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Lovely. It was my pleasure as well. Great. So there you have it. There was my interview with Christian Bockhove. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got a lot out of it. Um, I'll be honest, I was a little bit nervous before uh, interviewing Christian. I often get nervous before I interview people who I who I don't really know all that well. I've, I've met Christian at one or two events and I've chatted with him a few times on Twitter, uh, but I, I, don't, I certainly don't know him as well as, as some of the other people that, that I chat to. So I always get, I get a bit on edge, and particularly I get nervous when I'm interviewing someone who's clearly sm far smarter than I am. And that, that happens quite a lot on this podcast unfortunately uh, but Christian was dead dead nice really really friendly really funny guy as well and it was just just lovely to chat to him so I was, I was happy about that and I managed to relax pretty quickly into the conversation um, so just a few thoughts uh, that I just wanted to reflect upon based on our conversation the first is just a general point that um, I absolutely love speaking to researchers um, I first started doing this uh, I guess well I guess really when I spoke to Dylan William I guess uh, you'd class Dylan um, as, as a, certainly a researcher and, and a thinker these 
these days. And that was years and years ago. But what I'm really talking about um, when I say this is, is people who are currently kind of actively involved in, in educational research, but are, are a little bit possibly kind of removed from the classroom. And that's why I wanted to do the Research in Action series with uh, with um, people from Loughborough University. And also I wanted to speak to Christian because these are people who are incredibly clever, uh, incredibly deep thinkers, who are really, really passionate about their area of interest. And crucially, they, they want people to know about it because the reason they're researching this is to hopefully improve the um, the, the lives of the, of the children that, that teachers teach. And it, it fascinates me that, that teachers, um, and I often speak about this on the podcast, no matter what your philosophy no matter what your predispositions, you've all got, we've all got the same aim. You want to improve the lives and the understanding and, and the passion of, of your students. And it's the same with, with researchers. And what I guess I'm trying to do, and it sounds a bit of a cliche, uh, with the research in action and also speaking to people like Christian, is just bridge that gap a little bit. What is it that people like Christian are working on and how can it impact people, uh, students directly in the classroom? So um, I just wanted to make that point and also, of course, set up the Research in Action Series 2, Season 2, I should say, that's coming uh, coming very soon. Uh, the other things I really enjoyed speaking to Christine about is, is cognitive load theory. Um, I enjoyed the kind of best bets conversation. And I thought I had him, you know, on that uh, reduce extraneous load. I thought he was going to bite on that and, and agree with me on that. But Again, I always find Christian's thoughts sobering um, whenever, as I mentioned in the introduction, whenever I'm in danger of getting carried away with something or somebody shares a paper or something like that on, on Twitter. Um, and Christian always, not, not kind of does it in an awkward way, but always just, just offers that word of caution. And just, yeah, it just helps me think a bit more carefully um, about it. And I'm not going to chat too much about cognitive load theory here. Uh, we, we've done it to death on this podcast. But just a reminder that I, the way I use it on a day-to-day -day basis is it reminds me what to watch out for. It reminds me of some of the mistakes I've made in terms of presentation of PowerPoints, worksheets, speaking whilst people are trying to read and so on and so forth. And I find the concept of extraneous load super useful uh, for that. But I take the point that um, you can you can you can do all those things without buying into it as a, as, as a kind of a winner takes all theory. Um, next two things, though, um, I just want to spend a little bit more time on. I really like this notion that, that coherence is the key. Coherence in curriculum and coherence in, I guess, kind of the way teachers approach things uh, within departments, if we were trying to reduce it down a little bit. Um, in the forthcoming episode with Tom Frankham as part of Research and Action Season 2, we talk about this in terms of mixed attainment, and Tom makes the point that one of the big advantages of a mixed attainment approach to teaching is that all teachers are teaching the same thing, not just the same topic, but um, often using the exact same resources, the exact same tasks and activities. And whilst there may be kind of disadvantages to that, in the sense that some teachers may be stronger at using that particular task and this explanation and so on than others, there's a massive advantage in the sense that everybody can then collaborate uh, on it in terms of the planning and also perhaps even more importantly, reflect on it afterwards, what worked, what did what we're going to tweak for next year and so on and so forth and this is something I've, I've completely changed my mind about if you'd have asked me about kind of schemes of work and um, a teacher's approaches to topics if you'd have asked me what the best thing to do was let's say 10 years ago I'd have said definitely let teachers just make up their own mind teachers teaching to their strengths what they're passionate about using the activities they like and so on and so forth but when I think back about my early experiences as a teacher I was flipping useless some of the things I was doing some of the tasks I was choosing absolutely 
absolutely terrible. Some of the explanations I was given and so on. Um, if I'd have had a really strong, coherent scheme of work or curriculum, whatever we want to call it, um, with activities, tasks and things that we were all using in our department, people who were far more experienced than me, I would have been such a better teacher and my kids would have got such a better deal on that. So it's just something um, I, I like thinking about, I like coming back to. Um, often, uh, Joe Morgan and I, we, we, I guess we kind of slightly disagree on this to a, uh, to a certain extent because Joe makes the point that she, she wouldn't want to be kind of constrained in the, in the tasks and activities that she uses and so on. But I always think it's, 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 worth, it's worth bearing in mind. And if I was head of department now, I'd certainly be edging towards a more coherent approach to teaching within the department. Whereas in the past, I would have said, yeah, variety is the key to this. And then finally, uh, textbooks. Now, Christian makes the point that it's, it seems crazy that in England we don't have uh, these, uh, whether you call them national textbooks or, or certainly textbooks that are used by a big old chunk of schools. Um, and you, you point to the higher performing regions and they all seem to have in common that they use, they use textbooks. Now, I've been thinking about textbooks a lot recently uh, for a little kind of side project that I'm um, that, that I'm thinking about at the moment, where I just want to see some kind of good examples and um, good uh, good introductions and good choices of questions and stuff to, to, to certain topics. And I've looked in some of these so-called modern textbooks. Oh, tell you what, they are not great. So then I did a bit of a Joe Morgan here, actually. I started digging through the old stuff. So I've got a load of old textbooks, nowhere near as many as Joe and, and not as old as, as the ones that Joe's, Joe has. But I, I started digging through the ones that I used as, when I was doing my A-level. So the classic Bostock and Chandler uh, A-level ones and further maths ones and so on and so forth. Whoa, they're flipping good. So I treated myself to Bostock and Chandler GCSE, it's from about 94, something like that, and Jean Holderness uh, GCSE as well. Well, and wow, the the kind of the the sequencing of questions is great. The quantity of questions is absolutely amazing. You're never short of practice with them, and it's just uh, the worked examples are really good. It just seemed to me be, be on a different level. And again, it just got me thinking back to this coherence point that if I was following that as a less experienced teacher, if I knew that this was a good sequence of questions to give to my kids, or this was crucially, I think this is the main one. This was a really smart example to use when I'm first introducing this concept. I'd have been so much better. I'd have been so much better. Um, CIMT uh, and the MEP uh, resources, I think, do a great job of this as well. Um, a, an online textbook, uh, PDFs, completely freely available. They're fantastic as well. But I'll tell you what, I'm loving flicking through an old textbook. Uh, now, I say old. Why oh, I'm old, aren't I? We're talking 90s here. Um, I absolutely love flicking through these. And yeah, it's... yeah. I'm, I'm, again, someone I've completely changed my mind about. You would have not seen me teaching with a textbook 10 years ago. Now I would give anything to have a class set of quality textbooks. But there you go. Anyway, I'm rambling on far too much. Uh, all that remains me to, uh, to do is thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. Christian for being an absolutely fantastic guest. Uh, remember to check out uh, the ED family page um, for teachers. There's a link to that uh, in the show notes. And thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for tuning in in your thousands. The next episode you'll hear on this podcast are the Research in Action Season 2. Oh, you're going to love these. There's some absolute classics. So if you enjoyed this episode with Christian, I think you're really going to enjoy those. Anyway, you take care of yourselves. Bye for now. <laughs>